Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. Um, first thing you notice is the red hair, shocking but sultry. Then the green eyes and the soft, sensuous face. But it's not until she opens her mouth that the power and intensity hit. Why do we... Crucify is based on not being a victim anymore. You stand there wondering why somebody can't acknowledge you, can't say, hey, job well done. Hey, I support you. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Crucify, the first song from Tori's first album, Little Earthquakes. Everybody. Hey. Welcome to the very first episode of our brand new show, Drive All Night, The Songs of Tori Amos. The goal of this show is to discuss the canon of our favorite redhead, Tori Amos, in chronological order. We're going to discuss the canon. We're going to discuss every officially released song, every live cover officially released, the B-sides, the soundtrack songs. What we really want to do is create a historical record and a time capsule for each song, right? That's what we're doing. Great. Great. So let's get to it. This is the beginning, David. I know. I have those first episode jitters. (laughs) Anyhow, we've been doing this show forever, but we're redoing the Little Earthquakes episodes because when we first started doing the show, um, I had the idea to do the show back in the fall, summer, fall of 2015, following a format of a show I had heard before, a podcast that really inspired me to do this show, Song by Song, The Songs of Tom Waits. So I kind of borrowed his format. You know how artists, you know, we just... we're influenced by one another. We're, we're having a dialogue, so I stole from him. Well, steal like an artist, they say. <laughs> and uh, the format originally was 15 minutes long. You know, we just kind of had like a fangirl perspective on the songs. But what we realized quickly, what I realized quickly by doing the show, is that it served me and Tori and every everyone much better if, if it was a historical record, if we were able to create a time capsule for each song and to really go into the history. We have such an incredible archive of material, not only that she's recorded, but things that she's said, interviews that she's done. Wouldn't it be great to compile all of that in one location per song, really get into the history of the song, the recording of the song, the meaning of the song, fan interpretations, live versions, to really have it all encapsulated, if you will, in one location per song. We want to honor these songs the way they deserve to be honored, knowing what we know now. Exactly. And we have so much material now, but it's quickly disappearing. The internet was a wild terrain back in the day. When we were growing up, David and I have been through it all from the beginning. We helped settle the Tory Wild West. We did. (laughs) There were so many websites, and now they're all gone. The Dent's no longer. The Dent has been kind of archived and taken over by Undented. There are many, many others. The Dent, gone. Here in my head, gone. 
Turbid Blue, gone. Angelfire.com slash Eve's trading page, gone. <laughs> so Little Earthquakes, the album, was released on January 13th, 1992 in the UK and February 25th, 1992 in the United States. What took us so long to catch up to the Brits? I know. Do you think the UK was a test market? <laughs> like, I mean, clearly. What are we going to do? Legend has it they shipped her away to the United Kingdom. Where people would truly understand her strange ways. A woman and a piano? America won't understand this. We were all in the throes of CNC Music Factory. Nelson. Oh, I loved Nelson. But this podcast isn't about them. Let's start this season by telling our little earthquake stories. This is their first act. We're going to get into a little bit of personal banter and a little bit of personal relationships to the music. Then we'll come back after a little break. We got a lot of covers in store for you. A lot of interesting things in store for you for this episode. So, David, do you want to tell me how you discovered Tori Amos, her music, her words, the musings, the woman? I think she discovered me. I think so. She made she you a woman. She was on the hunt. She was for new fans. Yeah, no, this is actually the perfect time to talk about that because Crucify was the first Tori song that I ever heard. I was introduced to it by a girl named Liz Giltner. I don't know why I feel the need to share her name, but it's still with me. She brought you to this. So I was at a Catholic middle school and we had religion class and we were all tasked with leading some kind of meditation or discussion at the beginning of every class. And we could choose to bring in a song and print out the lyrics if we so chose and play it for the class and we would all discuss it. And so she brought in Crucify and the teacher had reviewed the lyrics ahead of time and decided that they were too offensive to be played in class. But she extended a challenge and the challenge was that if this girl could make an impassioned pitch and convince her that the song should be played for the class, then she would go ahead and do it. And I don't remember what the discussion was or what the argument was, but she managed to convince the teacher that we should all hear the song and talk about it. So that's what happened. So we all got our lyric sheets and she hit play on that CD player and my, you know, my life was forever changed. <laughs> that's amazing when you can pinpoint the exact oh, moment. Yeah, no question. I can remember it clear as day. I can't remember the exact moment. What I remember is being in, it was called CDX. It was Las Cruces, New Mexico's first used CD shop, 1992. And I'm thumbing through the CDs and I saw Little Earthquakes and I pulled it up and I said, oh, that's her. And I had this memory of seeing Silent All These Years, the video, but the memory that I had at that moment was that the video had kind of rocked me and it was kind of thrilled me because when I picked it up, I was like, oh, that's her. Like I couldn't believe I was finding this in a used CD store, store for $8, $10. I think it was $10, $8 or $10. I had it and it was one of the ones that I bought. And immediately when I got home, put it on and I just couldn't with it it was mm. so weird mm. i was like who is this girl this mm. is so strange yeah. and then we got to me in a gun and i was like oh my god that was it that was my moment mm. so turned it right back to crucify and just absorbed it for the next 25 years or so <laughs> until you counting. are finally ready to talk about it right. now <laughs> exactly so that's my toy story yeah it's interesting to hear you talk about it as being so weird that you couldn't process it at the time, especially because the album seems like quaint is not the right word, but to call it weird now, it seems 
that seems like such not an appropriate word to describe it. But it was daring and unsettling. Unsettling. It was something I didn't want to share. It was something that was very private. I still don't know that I can put words to it accurately. Except for to say that it was something that my 12-year-old soul needed. I totally identify with what you're saying in terms of wanting to keep the experience of this album private almost. And much like you, I've always loved music, but what I was listening at the time was probably just more straight ahead pop music. So I hadn't heard anything like this before. So it sort of, it definitely started the process of unlocking something within me. And it started asking, I started asking a lot of questions, like someone can make music like this, someone can ask questions like this. Like the album, of course, just feels like an intimate experience and you feel like it's directed at you. So it's very personal, but it is, I want to go back to the way you described it as weird. I guess at the time it seemed kind of weird, especially to like a 12 year old listening to Paula Abdul or whatever else we were listening to. But I always felt like I had a tendency to be drawn towards things that were a little more adult and let's say sophisticated than other kids were or that even my sister was at the time who's six years older than I am and certainly than my parents were or understood and that when they sort of like peeped in on what I was interested in or looking at or doing they were always sort of judgmental about it so I remember hearing Crucify in class and then asking my sister to drive me to the record store and so of course I go find it And I think it was in a long box and like I pick it up and flip it over and she's standing there with me and there are these giant phallic mushrooms on the back, which just made me feel really exposed. Like, of course, this thing that I'm really excited in is going to have giant penises on the back of it, which not only makes me feel exposed as like a young queerling or whatever, but just here's something else that I'm interested in that seems so weird that someone else is going to make fun of meaning my sister whatever at the time not maliciously in kind of a big sister way but you're in that awkward phase where everything you do you feel like people are watching you and making comments on you so even just the experience of going to buy the album felt somehow vulnerable i was so naive i was a really naive kid it took me years to realize that those were penises it didn't occur to me i was super naive but i really identify with what you said about being exposed while listening to this music because hearing all of these things that are said so clearly things I've never heard before. She was laying it all on the table in this entire album. She just lays it on the table. To hear that, it's like covering up, feeling exposed. Like I can't listen to this around anybody because I'm having such a strong reaction to it. I felt every finger in the room is pointing at me. I felt that. And and what I want to do with this season of the podcast is really to try to take us back to when we first heard these songs, how bold they were. The 90s were a very, very different time. How strange it was to hear a woman say these things with just a piano with nothing covering it up she's exposed singing right to you feels like laying herself bare therefore laying you bare making you vulnerable and i really want to remember that because that was a great feeling to be reborn almost or born Mm -hmm. for the first time Mm -hmm. i love what you said about going back to the place we were when we first heard this music Um, I think that's going to be easier than we think. 
But it's easy to forget and also take for granted that Tori really was way ahead of her time. The questions she was asking, her perspective, the language she was using, she's been consistent pretty much with, you know, her. she's been on brand and consistent since day one. Yeah. But she's been asking questions about religion and questioning the patriarchy, which... And sexuality. Yeah, which again has either... I don't even want to say it's circled back, but it's crazy to think that that is so much the focus of wide conversations that we're having now. Mm-hmm. And back then it seemed transgressive or no one was talking like this. No one was raising these issues. And Tori was having these conversations in 1992 through her music. To be fair, it's not an either or. Tori right. is not a pop artist and right. it's not a pop artist responsibility to be tackling subject right. matter like this. But I think the point is, there was someone out there who was using music as as a vehicle for that. And I absolutely feel like Tori's music found me rather than the other way around in that moment because it opened me up to something that I absolutely needed. My relationship with the music, but also as importantly, or if not more so, the relationships with the people in my life that I made through her music set me up for, I don't even want to say success, but for surviving the years that were just ahead of me that I don't think I would have been able to weather without the support system that came with all of that. It sounds so dramatic, but I absolutely can't tell you where I would be or what I would look like without this music. You know, we have such a wide network between us of lifetime friends that we've made through shows. So even in that small way, the music brought us to the show. The music brought these people to the show. The music brought these people into our lives. And Mm -hmm. these people have saved my life. These people are my friends, my dearest loved ones. I can't imagine my life without my friends. So in that way, I do think she has changed the course of my life for the better. The music has very much been something I've run to in my darkest times when I was younger, when I felt like no one understood me. We all go through that, but it's real. And it gave me something to focus on. It felt like somebody kind of understood what was going on or someone was singing about something that I was going through. And it helped me maybe even to understand myself a little bit better. I don't know where I'd be either. It sounds dramatic, like you said, but it's true. And I agree with you. Yeah. Well, let's get into Crucify, shall we? Okay. Should we talk about our guests, David? Yeah, we should. Uh, I'm very excited. On this very first episode of Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos, we have our very first super fan guest. Her name is Heather Allen. She went by the handle Forever a Tory Fan across all platforms, and she still is. Glad that so one worked out for you, Heather. It's held to be true. Crucify is her signature song, so we'll be talking to her about her love for Crucify, what it means in her life, and how her relationship with that song has changed over the years. We have a very good conversation coming up. We've also got, uh, and this is a big one, the background vocalist, Tina Gullickson. We're putting a name to the voice. Of course, a huge thank you to Jen Buchanan and Chase Stymack for doing the research on this episode. Okay, let's take a moment. Let's take a breather. We're going to do a little, I don't know, let's take. let's do the very first cover of the, of the season. What do you think, David? Let's start strong. Let's start with a, a classical cover. Let's start with the Vitamin String Quartet. This is their cover of Crucify. We'll be right back. Perfect. Thank you. 
Jordan's daughter means you get really good poppy seed cake at Christmas time. And you get really wonderful dresses and things made by these really nice little old ladies. And you also get an incredible amount of confusion. But when you're 14 years old and you don't know what your beliefs are, you're taking on everybody's beliefs around you and you're making them yours. And I'm not about the institutionalized church at all. The institution, my father and I discuss this a lot. He's a minister and we, we agree on a lot of things. He would have nothing to do with what the institutions become about guilt and shame and repression where people are afraid to express themselves, where they've divided the passionate side and the love side and, and you think you can't have love and passion lust, we call it, whatever terms we want to use, instead of it coming together in this balanced way. That's why I did music, because that's the only place I felt like I could express this stuff. And you get so confused with these ideals and these belief systems. You ready to crucify ourselves? We got to crucify. So Crucify is the first track from her first solo album, Little Earthquakes. It was produced by David Sigerson, mixed by Paul McKenna, Recorded by John Beverly Jones, assisted by Leslie Ann Jones. Background vocalists, Nancy Shanks and Tina Gullickson. The musicians on the track were Eric Williams, who played ukulele, John Chamberlain, who played mandolin, Paulina de Costa, who played percussion, Ed Green, famous session drummer, he did the drums, Jeff Scott did the bass, all led by one fiery little redhead on acoustic piano and vocals. Uncredited. Tori Amos. Oh. <laughs> A lot of parents in that delivery room welcoming that newborn baby that was Crucify. <laughs> Crucify had the distinction of being one of the original tracks on the Little Earthquakes demo that was submitted to Doug Morris at Atlantic Records. It was rejected as it was, demanded that more tracks be added, or Tori famously begged for more money to do more tracks. It's crazy to me that back then they were so focused on curating an entire album, as opposed to being focused on a single or even a handful of singles, because I absolutely think she gave them some potential singles. I mean, Crucify is, I think, one of her catchiest songs, period. Yeah. It's crazy to me to think that, again, the process of putting out an album, there was so much hand-holding going on, and they were really focused on crafting this 12-track experience and getting it just right. And the fact that a tape that included Crucify was deemed not good enough or not catchy enough for them at the time. I think it has a lot to do probably with the failure of Why Can't Trey Read is mm -hmm. my guess and that they'd put so much money into this artist that they had locked into a seven album deal. I realized that she had not proven herself as a commercial artist up until this point, but do you think her experience was atypical at the time and sort of informed by the perceived failure of Why Can't Tori Read or that... A woman at, at that point in time, this was just kind of how it was done in terms of the level of input that the that the label had. Probably, if I'm being honest, 10% that she's a new artist, 20% that she was a commercial failure on the last album, and 70% that she's a woman. That's what I think anyway. Yeah. And I don't have a background in music, and I've never worked for a record label. I do think that their commitment to shepherding this album does speak to the fact that they knew they had something special with Tori. They just didn't know exactly what to do with her, but they didn't want to let her go because that would have been easy, right? After mm -hmm. YKTR, that didn't work out, end of contract. But they were really trying to figure out where to go with her. And um, in terms of Little Earthquakes, I actually think that ended up working out to the benefit 
of the album for it to be rejected and sent back. And she had sessions to continue writing. And I think ultimately the album revealed itself to be the way that it wanted to be, but it had to go through that first. And I think a lot of artists probably do their best work when they're being challenged and the bar is raised as opposed to I just hand over essentially my draft of, and that's not, you know, obviously that's not fair and we're simplifying things, but to get some pushback and to have people weighing in and saying, maybe go back and think about this. I think maybe it's even just like stubbornness in you that arises out of this that inspires you to do better work. I think it all is for the best. I agree. I agree with that. Um, I'm reading from Tori Miss Collectibles. It says, In late 1990, Tori came back to Atlantic Records with a 10-track demo tape, several years in the making, that would later become the essence of Little Earthquakes and its subsequent B-sides. The track listing consisted of Russia, which was later Take to the Sky, Mary, Crucify, Happy Phantom, Leather, Winter, Sweet Dreams, Song for Eric, Learn to Fly, and Flying Dutchman. So this was a part of that original demo tape. So mm-hmm. let's hear the Crucify demo. Do you want to hear the Crucify demo? Hit it. Roll it, Ollie. Got a kick for a dog, begging for love. I gotta have myself a ring so that oh I can have my cross. I know a cat named Easter. He says, "Will you ever learn? You're just an empty cage, girl. If you kill the bird, I've been." Oliver, our sound man. <laughs> I love this peek into the creative process and to see how things developed and changed over time to sort of you know be honed honed to perfection so to speak. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's unfinished, but you can tell it's a catchy song. It's a great song. And I'm really glad that they never kicked it off the album, that it in fact ended up opening Little Earthquakes. It was so strong. We have a quote here from the Little Earthquakes songbook, uh, which I think is really great. Bell started going off every time I wouldn't stick up for myself. I accepted Quasimodo was a squatter in my cerebral area. A rhythmic pattern kept chasing me around. I dug out the drum machine and put the pattern down. I would leave that pattern on for hours while I just sat and argued with myself about stuff. The first music to get put to the pattern was the B section. I've been looking for a savior. A door opened and the demon started to show up. Doors are always opening for her. (laughs) Thank God. It's funny that she did her own drum tracking, though. I do want to talk about that, that she put down the drum track. I imagine her with this little four track with this like drum machine. Mm -hmm. In her little studio apartment here in LA, behind the church on Franklin... And just like the magic that was born there. Which we can picture because it's so close to where we are it's now, like two right? two miles away. Yeah. Drive past it all the time. But I love this quote because it just seems so pure. And I can almost feel in this quote that experience of everything being stripped away after Why Can't Tori Read and her just going to make the music that she not only wanted to make, but at this point had to make. And this quote, I remember it because I had the Little Earthquakes songbook. And this one has always stuck with me because I love what she says about a door opening and the demon starting to show up. That makes me wonder at what point in the process of pulling Little Earthquakes together, she started writing this song, meaning how many songs she already had, or if this was one of the first, Mm. aside from maybe like a China Mm -hmm. or something that she already had. 
and the experience of this song coming really did open the door for the other songs to come. Right. And I just feel that. I think that's why it's the first track on the album, but it also kind of mirrors, again, the experience that I had with her music, with this being literally the, 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 first, o- the opening yeah, to yeah. all the other. Yeah. So it's great to have that experience with the song, it being the first on the album, it being your first that you heard, it mm-hmm. being the like entry point. And I really did consume her entire catalog in order. Yeah. Um, Me too. Like yeah. that's, that's, I think what makes, I wouldn't say that we're, you know, scholars, Tori is scholars, but we lived it like as it was happening. We're lucky that we do have the context of how hearing this at the time was shocking. You didn't hear this stuff right. on the radio. You just didn't. There's even evidence in it in the remix of this song that was pushed to radio because the line, got enough guilt to start my own religion is taken out of the song because that was too shocking. Yeah. So there's evidence there that, okay, this is too much. Let's pull back a little, do a little remix, take out the offensive stuff so we can get it on radio. Yeah. So the fact that that line wouldn't make it to radio at that time, you can see what kind of world we had to live through. Yeah, and that totally makes sense. Granted, I was at a religious school, so that wasn't necessarily a snapshot of wider culture at the time, (laughs) I get. But still, looking at these lyrics, they seem pretty benign on the the page now. It's like, can you imagine that this teacher taking offense to, and we weren't particularly young, meaning like kids' kids. We were 12, Mm -hmm. 13 which I really think is kind of like the perfect age for something like this when you're primed for it. But the fact that she was trying to, you know, shield us from it or not let this filth enter the classroom is crazy. But I know that that was the case. And the same applied to my parents. I was so hungry to be listening to this music, particularly this song, I guess, all the time once I found it, that I would put it on in the car or put it on in a mixtape if we were driving to visit my grandparents or something. But when it would come on, I would be sitting in the back seat, like really hoping that my parents weren't actually listening to the lyrics, which they weren't. But because I knew just saying, got enough guilt to start my own religion or mentioning God. Just what God needs, or, one more victim. Yes, I knew that that would raise red flags and that heads would whip around to me. <laughs> like, what are you listening to? This is profane or this is sacrilegious. So it was that combined with what felt like such a personal experience to me anyway i just mm-hmm. <laughs> i didn't have that religious of a background growing up i had already rejected the christian church i had i was raised catholic. catch up david i rejected <laughs> christianity at eight i did i was in the catholic church i was raised cat raised quote unquote catholic i was raised and it just wasn't for me i just didn't like to go and i had the good fortune of having a mother who was very young my mom's very young my dad's very young as well uh, they had me when they were young So my mom was kind of discovering Tori through me. So my mom and I shared Tori, which was, that was strange. How did you feel about that at the time? My experience of my mother listening to the music and my experience of myself listening to the music, it was everything to me. I was absorbing everything, the singles, the every single thing I could get my hands on, everything I could read. I was living for Tori Amos at this time. And she was enjoying the music as music that one might enjoy in a, radio or a mixtape or a cd that you put on and nothing deeper than that so even though she even though we were sharing it i never felt like she was really listening to it too deeply no offense because no one could understand this the way i could that's basically where it came from it's not that she wasn't getting it it's that like you just don't like no one could well i definitely could have relaxed a little bit because i don't think my parents particularly pay attention to any lyrics Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, cer- certainly not Tory lyrics. So I really could have just, you know, relaxed in that back seat. I mean, there's a reason why my dad's favorite song is Icicle, and it's not because of the words. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's good. Uh, we'll get into that. We'll unpack that later. So Crucify appears on Little Earthquakes in 1992. It comes back, it resurfaces in her career on Tales of a Librarian, of course. Appears in 2006 on Tori Amos, A Piano. And then it appears in her Legs and Boots series on eight different Legs and Boots. Then in 2008, she releases it on a double DVD collection live at Montreux, a 91 performance and a 92 performance. Crazy, right? Mm. Then, of course, Little Earthquakes, the 25th year remaster. Song's been around. It really has. And I think it kind of gets lost in the shuffle with A Silent All These Years or A Precious Things from this album. But this is a really, really important song in Tori's canon and it showed up a lot live and on all these releases so important that's a really good word for the song it was it really kind of broke her open in a way let's talk about the history of the single you want to talk about the single history yeah it's fascinating to me that this was not the first single released in the UK where they were really trying to break this album and Tori is an artist they went with me in a gun right but listening to this album there is no clearer choice in my mind for a first single it's I don't want to say upbeat, but it's the most straight ahead rock song, pop rock song on the album, I think. And that chorus, I think that's one of the catchiest moments in her entire body of work. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they wouldn't sort of latch onto that and push that out as the first taste of this album is well, you, a little mind boggling to me. I think UK radio is different. I don't think people need necessarily need catchy. They need meaningful. Uh, not that this song isn't meaningful, but I think Me and a Gun was so shocking that that really is what appeals to the Brits. At least that's what I've come to gather through my research. Um, I mean, maybe, but still, it's a cappella. Yeah. I can't imagine any world, British or otherwise, that where, <laughs> you know, an a cappella song about sexual assault would be played on the radio. This is again from the Collectibles book. It says, The fifth UK single from Little Earthquakes was originally scheduled to be a re-release of Silent all these years, but in late May of 1992, this was postponed in favor of Crucify. This turned out to be a fortuitous move as the remixed Crucify became Tori's highest charting single yet, peaking at number 15 and causing Little Earthquakes to re-enter the album charts. And that's in the UK. Now in the US, this was the very first single in the US, uh, was the remixed version, uh, which featured on the single all four B-sides from the UK Winter Part 2 limited edition single and added Me and a Gun as the B-side of the cassette single. There was also a cassette EP containing the same tracks as the CD single. So released in June 1992 in the UK and May 1992 in the US Mm. as a single. Life would change forever. For sure. Chart success was helped out by the release of the very limited edition Crucify Live EP box containing four live tracks, Little Earthquakes, Precious Things, Crucify, and Mother, recorded April 5th, 1992 in Cambridge, England. So let's play that live Crucify, which appeared on that box. This is from April 5th, 1992 in Cambridge, England. Looking for a savior in these dirty streets. Looking for a savior beneath these dirty sheets I've been raising up my ass, driving up a million With those angels Crucify myself 
I do think that's another interesting indicator of the label, at least in the UK, knowing that they had something special in Tori and not only that her live performances were pivotal to who she was as an artist, but early on, they sort of got that her fan base was going to want something to collect. Mm -hmm. And out Mm -hmm. of the gate, they started putting out something like this crucify box with art prints of the singles in them. Sold. To go to that, how many musicians do you know that have a collectibles book this early in their career? Yeah. Fans were rabid already from the beginning. And I love that Atlantic and East West recognize that. And that's sort of on the cusp of the internet, which made it easier, not easy, certainly easy now, but at the time, easier to find things. There was no greater joy than going to the record store and going right. to the import section. And seeing something and like the new. A, going to A yeah. and not knowing what you were going to find. Right. And it was always it, it, like nothing better than pulling out some coveted item or something that maybe you didn't even know existed before we had all these resources. It's so funny that you say that because I just went to Amoeba the other day. And I first thing I did and always do is go to the A's immediately yeah. and thumb through the A's. And what did I see? I saw like a limited edition, the new music from Tori Amos, which has got the tattoo on the cover. And I'm like, this old thing. <laughs> I put it down, like have it, of course. Yeah. But like, it's just funny how far we've come. For some reason, the Sam Goody at the Century City Mall was a magic wellspring for me in my Tory fandom. And it was not close to where we lived, but for some reason we ended up there frequently enough that I would always find something. I got the UK Crucify there with Mary and here in my head on it. And pretty good year, I think. So that's where I found a lot of the B-sides was this magical Sam Goody. And it would always just be one thing. Mm-hmm. And Out I would always buy it. And it would always be something different the next time. So it would just replenish itself. And it'd be like, oh, what new magical right. item is going to be in there this time? <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Hastings, very similarly. Hastings in Las Cruces, New Mexico. The original Hastings on El Paseo. Because when they moved to Loman, they, they went to trash. They were garbage. But originally on El Paseo, they had, you would go in, you'd find, who knows what you find. I found the China single there. Mm. I found, what else did I find there? The Limited Winter, the Limited one. Yeah, we were pretty lucky, or at least I was, because at a certain point, all of these items started, you know, fetching really high prices Mm -hmm. on eBay or even at record stores. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get most of them for, you know, the bargain price, which wasn't really a bargain, but import $9.99 for a single. They Mm -hmm. were all $10. Right. Yeah. So... (laughs) Oh, you're taking me back, David. You sure are taking me back. On December 18, 2009, Rolling Stone printed this uh, about Tori Amos. She says, I was living in LA when I wrote that. Times were changing. I had recently come out of the Why Can't Tori Read experience, which catapulted me, drove me to begin making this music. Unknowingly, I just had to write because I wasn't used to failure. I'd been a child prodigy. From child prodigy to vapid bimbo, I think was one of the quotes. It was a galaxy apart. Signs were happening all around me. Across town, someone called Tracy Chapman was in the studio recording her first record. There was another gal that was coming out at that time named Melissa Etheridge. Those two other women were being supported to be true to their art and I kind of got put into a category there were categories of more artistic more commercial and in my mind commercial wasn't a dirty word because at that time there were all kinds of artists that I liked that were doing it 
When Why Can't Tori Read was decimated, the image wasn't a good choice. I learned a lot by not really picking the photographer myself, not working with a proper stylist who understood what you were trying to do and can help you show that. I had to put the pieces back together because I hadn't been used to being a failure. So I had to then look at my part in the misrepresentation of my soul and how I pulled the trigger. If I can just say to that, what I've always admired about Tori is her belief that she's not going to be a victim, that she she puts this on herself. I had to then look at my part in the misrepresentation of my soul and how I pulled the trigger. I think that that resilience resonated so much to help us be strong as young little gay boys not understood by the world around us to help us continue to fight. I want to go back to a line from that quote where she says, there were categories of more artistic, more commercial, and in my mind, commercial wasn't a dirty word. I think that's pretty insightful because it's clear to me that Tori has never shied away from pursuing commercial success, right? And to say it's not a dirty word, and rightfully so, I think it's one thing to want to be true to yourself and make the music you want to make on your own terms, but you also want people to hear it. Right. Because <laughs> you could be making a music in your apartment, in your studio apartment, putting down a drum track yeah. that you're doing forever and no one will yeah. ever hear it. And what's the point of that? And anything worth doing is worth doing right. And I think Tori, for sure, if she does something, she wants to be the best at it. And I totally recognize and identify with that. And not that being the best means that you have the most ears on what you're doing, but I think that's part of the process of being an artist is it's a conversation and you're sharing your work and people are listening to it so I think sort of the drive for that quote-unquote commercial success we've seen that evidenced in how she's tackled her career and um, there's a little bit of luck involved because I think the commercial tide was shifting around this time to allow her to make the kind of music she was making and people were wanting to hear it and her you know alternative became pop really for a time there and things just happened to kind of line up for her in the stars um i want to read a little bit from atlantic records promo bio february of 92 about tori amos you ready who is tori amos a singer songwriter who could play piano before she could talk what is tori amos more than you bargained for for the first few seconds of her debut solo album little earthquakes you're thinking kate bush maybe and so it begins i know you rolled your eyes david's got the biggest eye roll sorry i didn't know you were looking at me oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking, Kate Bush, maybe. Then out comes the knife. The veneer is torn away. Imagine biting into a pea pod, and it turns out to be a chili. I've done that. Me too. Better still, imagine you just picked up a hitchhiker in the middle of the night along the highway that runs past the forest. She seemed like such a nice girl, but now you're beginning to worry. That's Tori Amos. How did she get that way? Well, she began early. <laughs> and then it goes on to give her like her history in North Carolina, her father being a Methodist preacher, her mother being part Cherokee. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I just love that they described her as a drifter, <laughs> like a possible <laughs> murderer. It's going to strangle you to death. <laughs> oh, yeah. Someone who's going to unzip your religion down and your skin. The first thing I think of is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Picking imagine? up that hitchhiker and things go south. She took us on a journey into the depths we weren't ready for, but it's kind of true. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. David has this amazing quote he would like to read from All These Years, the authorized biography. After yet another dark period of painful self-examination, Tori decided to appeal to the muses that had provided her with so much inspiration and companionship back in the days before she knew what a record deal was. She proceeded to create a fairy ring, like the old Celtic ring, on her living room floor. I brought in sticks and things from the outside, from nature, and put things that I was most connected with inside the ring. 
Whenever anyone came in, they had to step over my magic ring. My friends came by and looked. They didn't say much to me. They all knew I was doing my fairy shit. Adding a set of empty envelopes to the ring, Tori sat inside the ring and began to write again, vowing to give each envelope a song title. One of the first envelopes to get a name was Take to the Sky. During this period, Tori called the record company to let them know that she would be submitting a brand new set of songs before the end of March, insisting that this time I'm going to turn in what I feel is me, Tori. My music, my lyrics. I, th- I just think her journey, you know, how much strength you have to be living in L.A. L.A. is a tough place, and it's a tough place now. Back then, just the strength you have to live in L.A., to keep working at it for six, seven years, and finally exposing to yourself who you really are. She's chosen a name. She's carving out her path in every direction, and finally saying, I'm going to turn in songs that are me. And if they fail, at least I'll have failed with me this time. I just really respect that. I admire that. Yeah, I mean, we've put so much focus on the failure of Why Can't Tori Read and how that was such a pivotal moment propelling her forward, which it was. But it didn't get any easier from that point. She had to keep fighting to bring little earthquakes into the world. And even, you know, that continued on through Boys for Pele. We hear Mm -hmm. story after story of the fact that She would deliver the goods, so to speak, from their perspective, meaning a commercially successful album. And for some reason, it was never good enough for them. So back to the song. This is from The Hollywood Reporter, September 10th, 1992. Um, And this is just talking about a little little bit about the radio play that we talked about earlier. She says, I've been in the alternative stations because they won't play my lyrics. The whole Bible Belt banned me for Crucify because they thought I was being sacrilegious. They felt that it was detrimental material for their children and that it was blasphemous. So Crucify was banned and silent all these years using four-letter words, I think. Like, fuck this song. Oh. Um, But did you see, have you read the press release that went out? Uh, Atlantic put out this giant ad that said, these stations have banned Tori Amos for music. We th- and then in big bold letters at the bottom, we think this is fucking bullshit. That's incredible. That right? That they were so behind her because they knew what they had. They saw. I think they saw how it was, how people were responding to it, mm. and kind of like Val Azoli in the '96 era is like, we must find disciples. I think they're realizing like, holy shit, people are responding to this. We have something huge. There's no bad press, right? So they were probably like, ooh, great controversy. Banned? Someone is banning these songs. Yeah. <laughs> this was this was prior to the parental advisory sticker. Right. God, we've we're Victorian so old. public enemy. <laughs> <laughs> This is from the First Look video interview in fall of 1995. Tori says, I would get taken advantage of, you know, do things for somebody and they walk over you or want to make you feel like nothing. I do think that there's times when we can all be pretty abusive and we can be those victims and we change roles with ourselves. What do you think of that? Quote, David? I think this is so, This a quote like this perfectly encapsulates, I think, why we were drawn to Tori's music at the time because... Is there a better picture of teenage angst <laughs> than feeling like you're always trying to prove yourself to people mm-hmm. or doing things and they're just making you feel like nothing? Shall we get into some of the earliest TV appearances by Ms. Tori Amos? Mm. What's interesting about the journey of the song is that the very first known recording of it is July 3rd, 1991, live at Montreux, the jazz festival. And then it was released so you see the very first known live recording of this. I mean, it's just very, very special in that way. This song is very special in that way because that doesn't that's not every track. And let's play a little of that very first one.
Got a desert in my mouth Figures that my courage would choose to sell out now I've been looking for a savior in these dirty streets It's like a newborn babe It really is It really is <laughs> So passionate, so wild um, Here's Tori performing Crucify on the Jonathan Ross show in 1991, a UK chat show. And note that she does have a full band. This may be the very first time she's performed with a full band since Why Can't Tori Read, of course. I want to spit in the faces, then I get afraid of what that could bring. I got a bowling ball in my stomach, I got a desert in my mouth. Figures that my courage would choose to sell out now I've been looking for a savior in these dirty streets Looking for a savior beneath these dirty sheets I've been raising up my hands, dropping up the nail in Just what God needs, one more leg down And then she crossed the pond for her U.S. network television debut on April 23rd, 1992, episode number 1573 of Late Night with David Letterman. And here he is introducing her, and here she is playing Crucify. Uh, our next guest is uh, making her network television debut, and we couldn't be happier that it's taking place on our program. This is her first uh, solo album right here in the very popular CD format. It's called <laughs> Little Earthquakes. Ladies and gentlemen, here she is, Tori Amos. Tori! Um, and this is her on the Deanie Petty Show, 1992, playing Rusify. Crucify? Crucify. Oh. Son of a cat named Easter, he says, will you ever learn? You're just an empty cage girl, a kill by a bird, why do we? Here she's doing Crucify on Dennis Miller. Can you believe Dennis Miller had his own show? That's a whole other podcast. Sick of being 
little bit more. You want to play Top of the Pops? Top me. Top of the Pops from June 25th, 1992. She does the remix version of Crucify. Oh, got a keep for a a bacon polo. I got to have my supper rings of it. Oh, I can have my cross on all. I can't name Easter. He says, will you ever learn? You're just an empty cage girl in a kill the Wild that she's getting so much TV play. I know. She was all over the airwaves. Love our girl. Let's take a little break and we'll come back and talk about the music video, yeah? Okay. Want to do a cover? Which cover do My you want? My own. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you, we should just... You're do right. Do you have a Crucify cover? You're right. We should just play one. Not your own? No. You don't want to play your own? Everything around the, the room. Everything around the room is pointing at me. No, this is bom, bad. Bom, 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 bom. Got a boom ball in my stomach. In the room. No, it's just some holiday weight. Well, let's leave it to the professionals, shall we? This is a cover by Silver Cycle. You'll find it on our show notes page at songsoftoriamus.com. Comme un coup de rage, mais sans courage Alors j'implore que l'on m'oublie Il semble bien que les anges cette fois se soient endormis Et si je perds l'équilibre Si je suis trop fragile Pour trouver une issue Si j'ai renoncé à m'enfuir Est-ce au ciel ou en I've always had a fascination with the beheading of Anne Boleyn. It's haunted me. I've always had a fascination with baptism, water, and Christianity. That's haunted me too. This is one of the rare tracks, not rare, but one of the tracks in her catalog that has a video directed by Cindy Palmano, produced by Tracy Josephs, with a director of photography for the second part of the shoot being Adrian Wilde, styling by Karen Binns, and makeup by Leslie Chilkas. Hmm. All these people I reached out to, and the only one who got back to us was Tracy Josephs, and she was the producer for the video, and she wrote me and said... Hi, Evren. Thanks for getting in touch and apologies for not responding sooner. Working with the brilliant Tori on her videos with director Cindy Palmano was great. Unfortunately, it was such a long time ago, I don't remember any of the details, so don't really have anything to say that I think will be remotely interesting to listeners of your podcast. So sorry not to be more helpful and look forward to checking into your podcast myself. That's okay, Tracy. I think we got a lot of it archived, though any detail we would have loved... So I reached out to everybody else who had worked on the video, except for Karen Binns. I didn't reach out to her because her time her time is coming. I think there's a better time to talk to Karen oh, Binns. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the video. What do you think? Well, I've always had a fascination with the beheading of Anne Boleyn. I've always been fascinated by the beheading of Anne Boleyn. I'm a fan. The video follows 
Tori as an Elizabethan character cleansing herself once the cleansing is done. Actually, Tori says it better than I ever could, so let's just play a little bit sure. from the Fade to Red audio commentary. Roll it, Oliver. Now, the thing about um, this shot is that once you get in this bath, you can't go back <laughs> to being this Elizabethan woman. So it was um, really a liberation. And I felt I was being emancipated from the patriarchy. And that's what this is all about, really. I feel like we've got a lot of Tory bingo here. It's great. Again, <laughs> this is kind of like a mini course in Tory. Yes. All the classics are in there. The beheading of Anne Boleyn, being a minister's daughter, the resurrection. We even got an of course. We even got an of course, yeah. yeah. This is a little bit from the Tory Stories promo booklet that came out in 1998, which was her like handwritten thoughts on all of the videos. Queen Elizabeth I and Peeping Tom were the buzzwords I was hearing from Sin when we were chatting about Crucify. Cindy's visual sense never ceased to surprise and generally make me belly laugh. She's a bit of a devil. Cindy was always weaving in a subtext. Elizabeth I getting baptized and then doing her saucy strumpet shimmy after being blessed, of course. I'm a little uh, taken aback by Peeping Tom here. I guess when I think about it, when there's kind of the shots of her... It's closet, almost like, like you're looking through, room. yeah, like a peephole yeah. um, where the, like, you know, the, there's a frame and she's like trying on the gloves in that narrow mm -hmm. space. I guess there's like kind of an element of voyeurism there, but it's yeah. very brief. The way that it's shot with the vertical kind of peeping space appears again in Silent all these years yes. too. So it's like something that they're playing with, I guess, around this time. There's something really provocative about catching someone, catching sight of someone through a window, even for however brief it is, because it usually is brief. If you catch someone through a window, they're just kind of like walking by. But I love those shots. Yeah, Peeping Tom certainly has a sexual connotation right. or association, right? So I'm a little surprised that she would kind of play with that idea here. I don't know. What do you think about that? It's interesting because this is this whole album is intimate and she's referred to it as her diary. So maybe that's just another way of saying she's kind of leaving the window open for mm -hmm. us all to look in. But again, well, that seems almost like exploitive. But I don't also know. like in the time that they're talking about or that they're playing with little Elizabethan era, if you will. Provocative was a whole seeing the bare shoulder is like really scandalous putting on the collar it could be very sexual in a different era that's true and i guess we're almost we're also playing with the idea of religious guilt and shame so when you're sort of cut off from her sexuality or taught that it's shameful and it's something forbidden it makes you sort of even more curious about it and sometimes that can mm. express itself in different maybe um transgressive ways mm -hmm. so maybe that i don't know interesting threads kind of running through that maybe Sydney uh, Palmano says that she was able to get this video to a certain point before Atlantic took it over. Adrian Wilde, I believe, being the one who shot the second half, which was the performance half, like the her at the piano in the blue jumpsuit, you know, the part that looks really different to everything else. And in Really Deep Thoughts fanzine, issue number four, they ask Cindy Palmano, they say, Crucify has a different feel from the rest of the other videos. And she says... I took it to a certain stage, and then the record company wanted to edit it in a different way. It got a bit uncomfortable, so they finished it off, and I didn't. And Really Deep Thought says, Crucify has the definite MTV short attention span feel. It's a shame, really. And Cindy says, Crucify could have been good, but it was cut with some mad stuff that they shot later. I didn't shoot any of the performance clips. I think it looks dreadful, that stuff. It's such an obvious approach to femininity. That, and it's one that I'm not at all interested in. 
The filling of the bath was good, wasn't it? That was a good shot. I really like that one. I like when she steps into the bath and comes out of the bath. It all looks really Hitchcock. I love it. And then they say the clothing in Crucify is reminiscent of Anne Boleyn. And she says, yes, exactly. And they say, was that the thought? And she says, well, one of the queens. I don't mind which. RuPaul, could you imagine? Yes, I can, actually. <laughs> Makes more sense to me than anything. <laughs> I feel like these videos from Little Earthquakes are all very consistent, and that stands to reason because they were all shot by Cindy Palmano, and I think they're all tied very closely to the album artwork, and that may be for no other reason than they were working with a limited budget. But I think it works and gives the whole period kind of a cohesive visual feel. But because this video was shot after winter, I'm a little bit taken aback by hearing her sort of criticize the approach and how it was taken out of her hands because there is kind of very similar performance footage in winter. So this never seemed that out of step to me. I guess in Crucify, the camera is sort of caressing her in a way that it isn't in winter. The, sh the shots in winter are further back. Um, and it's not kind of swooping in with her like mugging and like shimming her shoulder at the camera. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's kind of the difference and what she's pointing out with its more traditional approach to femininity or whatever it is she says. What's your favorite moment? You know, I think it's pretty remarkable that they managed to create several iconic images, I would say, or moments across all of these videos from the first album. So I'd have to go with that opening shot of her walking on mm, um, in silence and taking a seat and you know she's in heels wrapped in a towel there's something about it that stands out to me that's like a again an iconic tory moment i'll say i love that we start with a cleansed woman the woman who's aware and is looking back at what she's been through hmm. i think that that's a really cool visual motif in this video but my favorite shots are the cheerleaders i think she deserves some cheerleaders do you feel like that last one is a stand-in for you how their arms you? cross like not no. not gonna give you the satisfaction i'm the one with the red pom-pom the showboat yeah gotta be different gotta do my own thing <laughs> Why do we... i like the twins the and twins. the way they come sliding in i know from the side off camera she's like whoop little known fact those are the Heart of Gold Twins before they got famous. Eat your heart out, Lindsay Lohan. Speaking of Cindy Palmano, let's talk a little bit about the cover of the EP, the single. This is from UK Radio WFNX on March 1st, 1994. The interviewer says, I was very interested in this. Here, you've got onions around your neck. Does it go all the way around? Yeah, it goes all the way around. It's the resurrection vibe. So that if you come out of the earth, you'd have it, you'd be all ready. Did you put this on? Did you like pull this over your head, this onion thing? No, they wrapped it around my head like a necklace. What so, a strange thing for him to latch on to. Right. Right? Right. It's like, so when you were in the box, did you get in the box? Were you <laughs> right. squatting there and they built the box around you? How did that work? <laughs> so it's time for our line by line, David. Finally. So already you feel that tension. You can identify with it. Who hasn't felt that way? where everyone is pointing at you, blaming you, looking at you. You just feel kind of put out there. Yeah, and I feel like we're in that moment with her, for sure. Right. In the present tense. Mm -hmm. Yes. I want to spit in the face get afraid of what that could bring. Such a crucial line because it shows the defiance and how she talks about not having a voice. You feel it there. Like she's stopping herself from doing what she wants to do, mm -hmm. from saying what she wants to say, from spitting in their faces. And going back to things that no one else was saying at the time, particularly a woman in music, she's talking about wanting to spit 
in people's faces. I mean, there just wasn't any sentiment like that anywhere yeah. else to be found, I don't think. Yeah. And it's so, it's like, it's going to be hard not to devolve into cliches right out of the gate in terms of the way that people, including us, I guess, talk about Tori and her music. But it is so naked and honest. It's, this yeah. is exactly how I'm feeling. She's not shrouding it yeah. in like poetic language. Right. It right. is just, this is I want to totally spit in their faces. Raw and uncensored. Yes. Yeah. Got a bowling ball in my stomach. I felt that way of you. <laughs> I think that that was part of what like really brought me in. Like I, yeah, like that, the way she's describing that feeling. Mm. I got a bowling ball in my stomach. Mm -hmm. I certainly felt like that through most of middle school and high school. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Same. Courage to do what? To speak up, to stand up for yourself, to spit in their faces. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To fight back, to... Tell them how you're feeling to defend yourself, mm -hmm. all of that, right? Mm -hmm. But you get afraid. Knowing Tori a little bit more now than we did then, knowing her story, being in LA, trying to make it in the music business, um, I really think that has a lot to do with I've been looking for a savior in these dirty streets going through LA, playing your music, trying to get anyone to listen to you, and then looking for a savior beneath these dirty sheets beyond being an amazing rhyme and so satisfying. It's a satisfying rhyme. I, I find it tells so much about emptiness and mm. longing and need that only sometimes that if you're feeling empty inside, you think that maybe sleeping around or f just having someone there will be enough. It never is, but you think that it will be. I love the beneath these dirty sheets part especially but that whole bit and of course right there with the use of the word savior it establishes a tie to christianity mm -hmm. and i can't help but think on some level this is a snapshot of you know a moment when she's broken away from that prior belief system that informed so much of her life but there's nothing taking its place like I've sort of lost this North Star of my religious faith and this faith that meant so much to my family and Jesus actually as my savior. And now I'm looking for something else to, to fill me. that void. And I'm just sort of lost and wandering in that darkness, I yeah, guess. Yeah, that's great. I've been raising up my hands, what comes to mind when she says raising up my hands? To me, that's almost like a move of surrender or laying yourself bare to someone and what you get in return is a nail driven yeah. through your hand, right? Yeah. So it's like I'm trying to offer myself to you or make myself vulnerable or give you something, give you a piece of myself. And what do you give me back? Pain. Pain, yeah. Just what God needs, one more victim. I think it's kind of a push to the realization that at a certain point you need to save yourself. Yeah. And it's sort of a commentary on people who take everything to God or just, you know, the answer to everything is prayer or yes. it's God's will yes. as opposed to being a more active participant in your own life with sort of agency <laughs> over what you're experiencing. So I think it's not a harsh judgment. I think there's a lot of empathy for those people, but it's, it's almost like empathy for God who has to put up with all these people who are just lining up to bring God their problems mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to tackle them, tackle them themselves. So I love the way you said that.
Why do we, David? Let's finally answer this. That's the big question. She's been asking for, Why? for a very long time. Why? And I have the answer. And the answer is... Nothing I do is good enough for you. Crucify myself. I mean, we can all identify with this chorus, right? We've all, we've all sang it at the top of our lungs. It's at some point in our lives been about us. It's hard to be gentle with yourself. And I think what drives so many of us is the need for approval. Certainly true of me anyway. And this really takes me back to an interview from, I think it's from um, MTV Review. And she tells a story that I don't think she's told before. Well, let's play it. Okay. I was always playing, but I think one time that was really hard and embarrassing to remember. There was some talent night at the Geyer's house. That, they were our neighbors. And there was this girl, Susie Geyer who I punched in the nose a couple years before this prior because she had talked bad about my mother. She was two years older than I was. And you know, she knew everything about everything. And she was very smart and very talented and all that. So talent night, the weird thing is, Susie comes out and plays this little pissant song, you know, and the house goes wild for her. I mean, just wild and I'm going you know they've never gone wild for me like that and I'm up and down the piano you know tying my shoes behind my head while I'm playing Mozart and stuff so guess what I did I played her piece but not as well I mean you know I I'd only heard it through the doorway everybody's was just standing there so embarrassed, but they didn't get that nothing I could do was ever enough, ever. So I figured if I could play Susie's song that they all loved, that maybe it would be enough. That is so absolutely heartbreaking to me, and I think something we all identify with, where it's like you, you just want to be the one who's loved and praised and accepted. And it's not about feeding your ego, but you just want to be seen and treated or told that you have some kind of value. Um, and I think that story is so heartbreaking because Tori's this prodigy right. who can basically sit down at the piano and it's like, yeah, 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 well, no big deal because you've been doing that since day one, or that's just kind of what we expect from you. And then this other little girl comes in and plays like her whatever, you know, basic. And people lose their effing <laughs> minds because I guess in that moment, those people feel like that little girl needs that in a way that Tori doesn't. But like whatever your version of that is, I identify with that way more than I care right. to admit, yeah. even at that point in my life. And just the way she tells that story, it's it still feels like it's present for her. And it's heartbreaking. And I just, again, yeah. I see myself in that. So, mm -hmm. and I think that is, that experience has to be a piece of the song or like a seed of the inspiration for this song, even more so than something like a precious things. I, I think, think even in the, especially in the chorus, like yeah. you can hear that sentiment that you just described in the chorus for yeah. sure. Like, what do I have to, what do I have to do to get that from you people? Mm -hmm. I'm bending over backwards and you're just like, meh. <laughs> That's really hard to sing along to, by the way. It is. Yeah. <laughs> you feel her say, she's putting her foot down here in this moment. My heart is sick of being in chains and I'm taking control of my heart. There's nowhere to go except for to free myself from the chains. And you feel it pumping through the song. I'm not sure I get that yet. I get the, sort of the declaration or almost like the cry of my heart is sick of being, but not like, what do I do with that? 
or what's the answer? What's the resolution? I'm not sure we have that yet. I don't anyway, at this point in the song, maybe not in the first chorus, but I love that it's embedded in there in her own being. It's in her. It's something she's bringing to the table already. Mm. It's not something she's going to find outside. It's in there. And that's what I think is remarkable because it's not just this problem of why do we crucify ourselves every day and it could just live there forever, but it's not. Embedded in the chorus is it's going to stop today. That's embedded in the chorus. That's what I mean, I guess. Got a kick for a dog, for love. So sad. You're here begging someone for love and they give you a swift kick in the face mm. or in the heart. I've always read that as she is the one with the kick for the dog. Like this dog is wandering up to her and her response is kicking it away. Because it's how she's been treated. I have to say, this is like an instance of bullying. Um, but <laughs> I know that sounds stupid, but in the sense that sometimes when you're mistreated and you feel powerless, the only thing you can do is turn on someone who's even less powerful uh-huh. than you are. Yeah. This song has always felt like it comes from a very young place. Even though she was, let's say, 27, 28 when she was writing this song, and most of these songs, she hadn't given herself the opportunity to explore all of these feelings. Um, so all of this kind of teen angst that had never been able to come to the surface, she's exploring it now. So you think it's her kicking the dog? That's how I have always... That's how I have always... What if she's the dog and she's yeah. kicking the dog, begging for love? Well, yeah, it's kind of that cycle or that pattern of behavior working its way down. Like, you did it to me, so I'm going to turn around and do it to someone else. But what so. if she's doing it to herself? Because this next line... I gotta have myself a ring so that I can have my cross. If I'm not suffering, I can't have my cross. So I'm going to keep ensuring that I'm suffering. You know, it's just like playing the victim. I mean, maybe. Talk more about that. I got to have my suffering so that I can have my cross. The idea of being a martyr for something or someone playing the victim, being a repeated pattern that you're comfortable with. Yeah. It's something that you know, and it's something that's familiar. So if I don't continue, if I don't repeat the pattern, if I don't keep my suffering, then I don't know who I am. And I, because it's always been this way. Maybe I'm not saying it right. I think you're saying it right. And I totally agree with whatever your story is, there's a level of comfort with it where you sort of define yourself by that. Whether Whatever the challenge or situation is, let's say depression, for example, like you might feel like you're battling depression, but there's also a point where you're comfortable with what those feelings are because that's kind of what you always know. know. Yeah. And in order to make it better, you have to work at it. You have to go into an uncomfortable Mm -hmm. territory. Right, and that can take a lot of courage and energy that can sometimes be hard to find. I want to read this quote from Ur Magazine from March 7th, 1992. She says, That cat is Jesus. He's my love. He gives me wisdom. The rest is up to yourself. So the cat named Easter, Jesus. Why named Easter? That's when he was resurrected, right? Uh-huh. Can I first of all just say, as, as you know, fraught with tension and discord um, and disagreement as Tori's relationship with, I don't know, the institutionalized Christian church has always been, even here at this point in her career, when it would be, be so easy for her to be kind of like, you know, fuck Christianity and fuck religion, she's never, that's never been no. her thing. She's never been like a Marilyn Manson or whatever, you know, who's like ripping pages out of the Bible. Right. She's asking yeah. questions. It's clear that there's still a place for it in her life. She's just figuring out 
out what it is and that she has a lot of affection for the figure of Jesus, like whatever that means to her. And she says here, he gives me wisdom. She doesn't say, um, there's no such thing as Jesus and all of you people worshiping an old right. man in the clouds who sent his fictional son. Like she doesn't ever yeah. say yeah. anything like that. And at some point along the way, I think that became the superficial read of Tori. Like she's the one who's giving her finger to religion and like, but that's never been true. Yeah. I think what's really special about her is that she was raised in the Christian church, that by the time Little Earthquakes comes out and the time that she's having these conversations with the press, she's comfortable with Jesus as a man. And so she is saying, I know a cat, like a cat is an affectionate term for a Mm. dude, like a cat, I know a dude named Jesus, like he's a guy to her. That shows the special relationship that she has a unique relationship with him. Talking to her personally, he's saying, come on, girl, get your shit together. And I like that special relationship. She's even in the very first track on this album show. Yeah. That's why this is such an amazing opening track. Mm-hmm. Just as a song. It's everything that Tori is. sums up, absolutely, yeah. sums up everything that Tori right. is as an it's artist done. and a songwriter. It, yeah. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it first try. You're just like an empty cage girl if you kill the moon. Coming off of Why Can't Tori Read, not being true to herself, realizing if she's going to make it or not, the only important thing is to keep the bird. Otherwise, she's nothing. You're a soulless empty shell you're a vapid bimbo you are something that even you're not proud of you can't even really stand behind it there is no bird there i think that that's kind of what this is if you don't stay true to yourself you're really nothing the bird being the soul in this case maybe her music right it's the voice of the bird the yeah we can't help bird. but associate a bird with singing right yeah. After Why Can't Tori Read failed, it's noted, I hate to say the word failed, but after that whole period, she's talked about how she stopped playing. It took her a long time to go back to the piano, and maybe that's what that is. If you don't sing, if you're not playing this piano, like, who are you? This is mm. who you are. This is mm-hmm. what you were born to do. This is what you've done your entire life. And with I can't imagine having done something my entire life like that and then to feel no connection to it and be really hurt by the relationship with it, that you reject it, and then what it's like to find it again. Yeah, and there's almost an element of giving up or turning your back on whatever that thing is that you somehow think you're teaching other people a lesson. If you've had a painful experience, like, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. You rejected me, so I'm not even going to try anymore, or I'm not going to put this out into the world. And then what are you left with? Um, An empty cage. Right. That's kind of a moment that's up there with that doesn't make you Jesus from Precious Things. Yeah. And the good book is missing some pages. This yeah. is like a fist in the air moment. Like, oh, she said it. Yeah. It's so... <laughs> the people at the concerts are going to cheer. <laughs> and it obviously implies that all religion is founded on guilt. Mm-hmm. Guilt is used to control you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. But again, the fact that it was almost like no one was saying this out loud. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this was in a song was like, oh, she's shining a light on this thing that we all kind of know to be true, but no one really talks about. That we're all controlled by this religious institution that makes us feel guilty about everything we do, which I have a lot of firsthand experience Same, with. So. But not as much as you, obviously. <laughs> This quote is from Hot Press, 1994. Speaking about that line in the song, got enough guilt to start my own religion, Tori says, I have that guilt still. I'm still working through the idea of giving myself completely to this man I'm with because he is my best friend and someone I respect, yet he's also someone I need to slam me against a wall and fuck me and love me as well. 
The concept of both being part of the one relationship is still hard for me to accept. Because I've been taught that being fucked up against a wall or anywhere is not love. Who the fuck thought up that idea? That notion has kept marriages from working, people from giving to each other, and both sexes under control for centuries. It's true. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us who were brought up in a religious household, you know, that were taught to be somehow suspicious of or cut off from our sexuality, right? So if you add, you know, being gay into the mix, it just makes everything <laughs> all the more complicated because coming at you from every direction is messaging that everything about you is bad. Everything about you is damaged or questionable or, you know, bound for hell, all of that stuff. And then it usually finds another way to sort of um, express itself in the world, right? When people are super repressed, it's always, you know, right-wing conservatives who are speaking out against gay rights or whatever it is who are, you know, found in public restrooms trying to solicit sex with men. So I don't know. This is the bird finding its voice again after the conversation with Jesus. To me, this is the cry to heaven. Please Mm. save me. How do you take that? Yeah, I think this is clearly a painful cry for help from a place of rock bottom where you've sort of lost your anchor of belief or even comfort in something and you're just crying out for it, hoping that there will be something else, hoping that you can keep going. There's something so satisfying in the music at this moment Mm. that kind of feels like you feel after she has this cry to heaven that she is at rock bottom because there's that little tinkling of the piano and then you feel like it's a brand new day you know she takes a breath i've been looking for a savior again i feel like her cries have been answered here and maybe what you said earlier about how you don't feel like my heart is sick of being in chains yet at the beginning is her line in the sand Mm. i feel like maybe it is here yeah. This, Nick? What do you think? We always get to this point where songs that we've lived with for a long time are suddenly like, once again, heartbreaking to me in a new mm-hmm. way, or mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm back in that place where we were when we first heard them, which is nice that we're able to achieve that. But I think it could be anything in this point. Like, I almost think she could be thinking of her career. Like, she's she's still so young at this point, but she might feel like this is her last shot. I mean, you have to, yeah, she is very young. If we look at it being 27, 28, but very old, if you hear her talk about having played since the age of two and a half Mm -hmm. she's been at this for a quarter of a century this Mm -hmm. is her make or break moment and even as she says like i even if no one was ever going to listen to my music i was going to play the music that i wanted yeah please be could be a cry a cry for that like i feel like i'm at the end of my rope this is my last chance to have a career or have any kind of success and if this doesn't work i don't know what i'm going to do or who i'm going to be so just Please be. Tell me there's more. Tell me there's something there for me. Tell me this is going to become something. Tell me I'm going to make it through this. There's something that I love about this line. It indicts religion, but it's also kind of calling to religion. Yeah. To help me. At the same time, like they're, it implies that they're never around when you need them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But can you come now? It, there's a... It's this weird sort of twist that I really enjoy. That's a heartbreaking line to me, particularly the way that it's delivered on the album. It really 
does seem like a cry or a, f- a plea for help. And Tori has returned to angels repeatedly throughout her catalog. We have, in, you know, No Angel Came on Juarez. Mm, yeah. She prays that the angels will um, find her yeah. on climb. Don't forget angels. Well, sure. <laughs> Trapping angels. Uh-huh. So I think you're right. It's an indictment, but also a, a sort of cry. And I think I lean more towards cry than anything. It certainly holds both. It just really resonates with me, maybe because of my, you know, background that we've talked about. But it's almost like you promised me, you promised me that if I had faith or I believed in this thing, if I did everything right, then I would be saved or that everything would be okay. And it's just not true. And I... I believed you. Where are those angels when you need them? Because I need them now. And they're not here. So maybe this is where she's saying, where she gets it. Like, I'm not doing it. My line in the sand. My heart is sick of being in chains. And it's my fault that it's there. It's me. I have to take agency for it. What I did to make the situation happen. And I'm taking the chains off. Oh, guess what? Oh, I've always had the key in my hand. How do you envision these chains? <laughs> With a lock? I've always pictured kind of old-timey Jacob Marley Christmas Carol chains. Right. Like dragging this weight. Right. With a big padlock around your chest. Yeah. I, you know, I've listened to the end so many times. I just don't hear her crucifying her land in there. I just don't. I, I've been listening for it. Okay. Can you hear it? Yeah. No? I hear Milan. Milan, Milan. Crucify Milan. 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 Mm. Well, her accent's terrible. Don't blame me. I'm just repeating what I hear. We're going to find out when she was the first time she crucified her land. And what if it was in Milan? You know what? I, we're going to get to the bottom of it. Eve has the map up. And what if what if that's what she meant? Crucify Milan. And then the Italians went crazy. And then she was like, well, I got to do it every night. Yeah. And she just kind of morphed into Mil- Why don't you just say the city that she was in? And people would have been like, yes. Oh my. Never going back to crucify Toledo. Can you, oh, no, never, never going, going back. back to crucify Boca Raton. Yeah, it would have been amazing. San Juan Capistrano. Well, it's never too late. 2020. She's going to be, she's gonna be crucifying you every night. If you're listening, you can take our advice. You don't even need to quote us. No, you can have this one. Yeah. It's on us. I love that we end with every day. Not only has she done it every day of her life, crucified herself, questioned her worth. Not only has she done it every day, but that ending on every day left hanging in the air like that makes me feel like uh, it's going to be a, it's going to take some work and it's going to take every day. Like I have to remind myself every day to fight this fight. Yeah, very well said, because I was going to ask you, do you think she or one making a statement like that is also walking the talk in the same moment because it's like such a journey here in this four minutes and then to say like well never going back again i've had this epiphany and i'm I'm, you know the end easier said than done right part of me thinks that that might be why she plays it so often because there is a step taken in the song right you go from every finger in the room is pointing at me present tense Mm -hmm. to never going back to what i was so there is a journey that's been taken in the song And maybe part of the reason she plays it so often is to remind herself. Mm -hmm. It's not just something that happens like, well, done. No longer crucifying. Right. And I think if anything, the journey is awareness and expressing this now. And then it's like, okay, step one. But where do I go from here? Ooh, step one. Every day is Mm -hmm. like, that's the open, the door opens. And then there's the brick road. Mm -hmm. And you got to take that first step. Mm -hmm. I love it. What's your favorite lyrical moment? Please be save me. I cry. Hmm. Yeah. Just out of the pure sense of desperation, I think. 
And again, that cry for help or trying to sing something into existence, I think, or compel something into existence, just needing to know that it's out there so you can keep going. I think my favorite lyrical moment, again, and always probably will be the beginning, every finger in the room is pointing at me, always takes me back to the first time I really got into Tori, feeling like she was singing my story, kind of like the mantra of it that would go through my head when I would be at school, just like singing it as these assholes in school would just be assholes, you know? I don't know. It was a safe place. That beginning, everything around the ram. Everything in the ram. Let's talk about the capitalized words. You ready? In the lyric book. In the lyric what we're booklet. talking about, right? Yeah. I want to do something this little earthquake season. I want you to tweet at us one sentence using all the capitalized words for each song. And then we'll pick our favorite sentence. And then they'll win a prize or a collectible or something. What do you think? I think we're synced up, Eve, because... People aren't going to believe it, but we did not talk about this before the show. But okay. I was going to pitch capitalized words, you know, refrigerator magnet poetry. Oh, I love have it. People... <laughs> okay, I like yours better. F- refrigerator magnet poetry. Yeah. So let's call it LE Poetry. Use that hashtag and come up with your 140 character or less poem. And we'll pick our favorite poem each episode. What do we think? I love it. I can't wait to see what you guys come up with. And I can't believe we didn't talk about that before. Yeah. We just made it up in the moment. And you know, I'm sure I don't need to tell you this, but you don't have to try to be profound. You certainly can if you want, but the funnier, the better as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Yeah. We just want poetry. So here we go. The capital words in this song from the lyric booklet are courage, God, heart, love, guilt, and cry. Courage, God, love, heart, guilt, and cry. Certainly the themes of this song, Mm. right? Yes. So you make your own 140 character or less, one tweet only, one tweet refrigerator magnet poem, and there'll be a prize. Tweet at us with the hashtag LE Poetry, Little Earthquakes Poetry. LE Poetry, may the best poet win. Oh my God, it's going to be so exciting. I love being a poetry judge. Mrs. Comer would be proud. Mrs. Comer would be proud. (laughs) Thank you for saying that, David. Roll it, Ollie. Thanks to Shay for discovering this cover of Crucify by the Oriental Spas. We'll have a link to it in our show notes. Well, we're back, and on the line we have Heather Allen, a Tori Amos fan forever. You may know her from The Dent as forever a Tori fan. Hi, Heather. Hi, Heather. Hi. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Rumor has it Crucify is your signature song. Yes, it is. She has been my signature song from the beginning. I'm desperate to hear your story. Heather's a friend and a supporter of our show. We found out that Crucify was her signature song because I was using the supporter pages on our website, and I googled 
Crucify, signature song Crucify, and up popped Heather. And I was like, what? We're changing our tactic. We've decided that we're going to pursue people now. Because it's always nice to be chased and pursued a little bit, right? So we're coming yeah. after you. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to find you and we're going to say, you you come on the show. So tell us how you first came to Tori and Mrs. Music, how you first discovered her, how that all happened. Um, I would have been a about 14 at the time, freshman in high school when Little Earthquakes came out, and a girlfriend of mine, her name is Laura, actually made a mixtape for me and had put a handful of songs from Little Earthquakes on there, and Crucify was on, as was one of them, and I immediately fell in love with it and connected to that song and her music, and at that time, I didn't have any of my own money, so I didn't actually go buy any of until actually Under the Pink came out, but... um yeah, so Crucify has always been my number one song since I was 14 years old, at least. So, What did you connect with about this, with Crucify? What was your immediate connection um, to the song? How did you interpret it? What I, was that? Sure. I think my connection to it was I've always had a perfectionist side to myself where I've never felt good enough ever. And I think part of that also came from having my mother, who is an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic. But at the time, um, growing up, I even went through therapy and counseling and stuff. And I just never felt good enough. And I always felt like everything was my fault. I could never do anything right for her, no matter what. She was very particular. And um, growing up that way, I think that helped me connect to Crucify. My favorite, actually, my favorite lyric is, I know a cat named Easter. He says, you'll never learn. You're just an empty cage girl if you kill the bird. She had said that that's a connection to Jesus. And so I always connected to that because I also was going to church at the time. And I felt that church was my escape from all of the stress from um, what I was dealing with with my mom. I always felt connected to that line. And I guess as I got older and learned more about what these songs meant from Tori's perspective. It was really interesting how that connected to me in that way. So I always felt like I had to be careful to protect my own inner self. And so that whole, if you're an empty cage girl, if you kill the bird. So that still gets me today. Like, I just love that line. And then the very end too, where it's, please be, save me, I cry. Oh, that really, really always got me. Well, Tori and her music have definitely been in your life for a long time. How has your relationship with a song like Crucify that you immediately gravitated towards, how has your relationship with it changed over time, over the past 25 plus years? That's a that's a really good question. Um, it's funny because Tori sings it uh, live. Obviously, she does it a lot each tour, but most tours. But for me, I think it's, I still struggle with a lot of the same things. So her lines where um, in live where she says, I, I'm crawling my way back or I'm never going back. I'm never going back. For me, it's like I'm still kind of here. I'm still trying to get through that. So I'm not going back to crucifying myself all the time. It's still a struggle for me. So I still haven't made it there. And to be honest, um, all the meet and greets I have done, I've not talked to Tori about crucified. I've talked to her about a million other things, and I've never spoken to her about it. But I feel like I haven't progressed myself still to have that conversation with her that I could say, hey, I've gotten through this. It's, I think it's probably going to be a long time if I ever actually get through some of my issues. Um, I try, I try, but 
I, I probably will crucify myself, unfortunately, the rest of my life, because I think that's one of the hardest things for us to not criticize ourselves. And I'm such a perfectionist, and it is one of my burdens to bear, I guess you could say. Has that been an intentional choice to not speak with Tori about that song or to, to get her input or to get her thoughts? It's been intentional. I have intentionally not spoken to her about it. I know that this was a kind of a breakthrough moment in her not only in her career, obviously, but in her life to write the songs on Little Earthquakes. And part of me believes that she continues to sing this song for so many years, 25 years of touring. The song is always there. And part of me believes that she continues to do that because she herself is struggling with the same issues and that it is a lifetime, not struggle necessarily, but a lifetime challenge to remember to not crucify yourself and to not say bad things to yourself and to not talk shit to yourself uh, just on the daily. I I don't imagine that you're the only one struggling with that. And I struggle with that myself. And I thank you for your honesty uh, in that regard. Well, Heather, do you have any parting words of wisdom, crucify inspired or a deep thought maybe, or, or something you think about when you think of that song that you might want to share? I just think about, I would say people keep in mind that Life is hard and it's hard for everyone and we all struggle and no one is perfect. All we can do is be the best that we can and love yourself as much as you can because life is short. Very wise words from Heather Allen. You can find her on the Old Dent forums under the handle Forever a Tory Fan. That is, if you were lucky enough to have archived them back in the day like I did. Ha 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 ha. Stop salivating. Heather, thank you so much for being our very first guest on our brand new show, Drive All Night, The Songs of Tori Amos. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. It was wonderful. It was fun. lovely. Bye, Heather. Yes. Bye, Heather. Bye. Every finger in the room. Here's Chris McFarlane doing a guitar cover of Crucify. Of course, we'll link to this on our show notes page, songsoftoryamos.com. But I get afraid of what that could bring. I got a bowling ball in my stomach. I got a desert in my mouth. Figures my courage would choose to sell out now. I've been looking for a savior in these dirty streets looking for a savior beneath these dirty sheets and I've been raising up my hands to drive another nail in just what God needs one more victim why do we crucify ourselves every day so the remix let's talk about that for mm. a little bit not only was that line cut from the song to make it more palatable for the radio but also the whole driving drum is changed to like a little symbol like a little so let's play the let's play the difference between here's the original Here's the remix. Every finger in the room is pointing at me. It's a whole different vibe, right? So all that you have on the remix is that is the piano, the hi-hat keeping a little bit of a beat, but it's no and the bass. Which is an interesting choice because I would assume 
part of the motivation was to make it more poppy and commercial and you're starting by stripping the percussion out and having this sort of naked cold open mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. i wonder if it's because they felt maybe the drum was too aggressive i don't know if that's the case but it's the only reason i can think of for taking out that kick drum I think you could be right because it is a very abrupt, abrupt start. And maybe they thought it was too abrasive, kind of like the, the guitar is on God, right? Right. Like, let's just pull that out. Right. The Collectibles book says that uh, the Crucify remix was shortened from 458 to 415 and with guitar added. But a lot of things are cut, like that whole, the whole bridge is gone, but it's back in the piano version and the version from a piano which do you prefer the remix or the album version <laughs> is that a silly question the album version for sure i do like this opening of the remix though there are a lot of things about the remix that i don't like mm -hmm. i really feel like the album version has a chance to build i find it very jarring when the first chorus of the remix the the backing vocals kick in and it's not just tori's voice we get that later in the album mix but right away there's sort of this rousing chorus we jump to the end kind of and we don't get to take that journey of the song building plus you said they strip out some of the more pivotal moving parts of the song i think team album team album version Team album i think the album version is a lot darker yeah sounding let's talk about the reworked version on tales of a librarian so the vocals are bumped up and there's reverb on it but there's also like some of the piano and the chorus is pulled out a little more mm. some of the mandolin is dropped down some of the percussive elements are pulled down a little in the mix um and then in a piano let's talk about the a piano version a little bit yeah it was billed as an unedited version of this of the remix, right? Yes. But it's still not quite all there. It has a fade out, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, the song lives in many, many forms. I'm kind of fascinated by the decision to include this version on a piano because this is way before the Little Earthquakes remaster, right, and reissue. And it seemed like at this point on the Little Earthquakes disc, she was making a concerted effort to present the album in a complete form, but also closer to the way it was when she initially turned it in by including the B-sides and the sequencing is totally different. You mean and on I, a piano? On a piano, yeah. yeah. And I've always thought that, again, that was sort of closer to the way it was when she was originally working on it or turned it in. Yet she gives us the remix of Crucify as opposed to the original version. So I don't know if that was an effort to provide us with more. And since we already had Crucify, she was like, well, I'll just give them a more unedited version of the single remix so they can have it, essentially. Or if she reached a point where she was reconditioning everything at that point, where she actually preferred that version to the album version, I don't know. Well, who knows? Don't expect me to try to get into her head. <laughs> piano is sparse here in a way that kind of reminds me of the beginning of Space Dog and because we know how she recorded at this point just piano and vocal I don't know I always picture her barely playing mostly singing it's great that we have Yanta to get a taste of what these songs would sound like if she were to just play them without singing because they're so beautiful.
there's some parts of this of the music that I love that the piano playing is leaving room for her vocals. It's it's not busy. It's not there's not a lot going on. It's giving her room to sing. But then on the flip side, she's singing along to Che. So a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I really think that this pr- sort of pre-chorus movement here is one of the catchiest but also moving moments still of her entire body of work. first bridge of the album and knocks it out of the park. Tori knows how to write a bridge, okay? And this bridge is everything you ever wanted from a bridge. I'm fascinated here um, that we have the piano pulled out from the album where it's kind of buried in the bridge of the song to hear that when she performs it live, especially on the first few tours, she really was... um, playing it in very similar fashion to the way it appeared on the album you just couldn't hear it and it always sounded like a variation to me but it's actually pretty close it's comforting there's something so comforting about just the melody maybe that's because we've been with it for so long but it's warm I wonder if we could ever separate from it and not hear the words running in our heads as we hear the instrument. I'm doing it. Yeah, Yeah, same. I'm hearing the words as I'm listening to this. And I'm also hearing there how the piano under chains actually does mirror the vocal line. Mm -hmm. She's playing and singing that same line. And I go back to how, if you ever tried to sing along to the chains and get it right, it takes a lot of control or someone who's an actual singer to get get it right. Listening to Yanta's instrumentals gives me such a window into what it must be like to produce Tori in those early years, to be a David Sigerson or an Eric Ross or an Ian Stanley, and to hear these naked melodies or these naked songs and figure out how to what touches you can add to them to bring the song to life a little bit of mandolin not too much you know a little bit of mandolin a little bit of percussion and a heavy drum beat and it's perfect you know so it gives me a little window into the producing process that I really like. You were nuts for the mandolin in 1991, <laughs> losing my religion, yeah. crucified. Yeah, we were. The 90s was the mandolin era. So what's your favorite 
musical moment. I'd have to go with, what would you call it? The A section of the chorus? The looking, just the melody of I've been mm. looking for a savior. I think that is so unbelievably catchy. And that is absolutely what hooked me the first time I heard it. It was like, I feel like I've heard this before, but it absolutely sounds like nothing I've ever heard before. So it was familiar, yet totally strange and new. And I still feel that way about it. Some, it's just super, I don't know, it really has an effect on me. So I think my favorite musical moment is just kind of the negative space in the verses where she's allowed to vocalize and keep the melody with her with her singing. It's just very naked. I really like that. What's your favorite vocal moment? Well, I absolutely have to go with the final, I've been raising up my hands, drive another nail in when she takes it high and the music has kind of dropped out. Mm Mm-hmm at that point that's great and her voice is so pure it absolutely sends chills down my spine and i don't know makes my hair stand on end still i think my favorite vocal moment is at the end of the bridge into the third chorus when she says in these dirty streets and she's just kind of speaking it Mm -hmm. god that's haunting to me Mm. you thought we were real let's get real (laughs) um thank you to yanta of course who uh without Yanta. Without beautiful Yanta, we wouldn't be able to play that cover. That's his cover. You can support him at patreon.com slash Yanta. We'll be right back. Here's a cover version by Joycey featuring Vesper Walk. Every finger in the room is pointed at me. I want to spin in their faces, then I get afraid of what that could bring. I got a bowling ball in my stomach. Got a desert in my mouth Think is that my courage would choose to sell out now I've been looking for a savior in these dirty streets Looking for a savior beneath these dirty sheets I've been raising up my hands Drop another nail in Just what God beats One more victim here Why do we We're so excited to be on the line with Tina Gullickson. Tina has been involved in entertainment and the arts all her life. Her professional career began at the age of 16 when she hosted a local television show, and modeling for teen fashion magazines and commercial acting soon followed. Here to talk to us today about her experience recording the background vocals for Crucify is Tina G. Hi, Tina. Hi, Efrain. Nice to hear you. Nice to hear you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, enjoying a, a kind of an overcast but beautiful wintry Southern California day. Oh, the best kind of days. We're so happy to have you talking on our show. First and foremost, tell us a little bit about your history, how you realized you're a musician. You've worked with some incredible people. Talk a little bit about that. Oh, thank you. Um, I don't know when I really realized I was a musician technically, but I've always been involved with either singing in church, singing in school. Probably when the light bulb went on was when I was actually hired to do some sessions, and it was uh, something that was maybe referred to by word of mouth or, or um, you know, when I actually had a little cash in hand for doing something in the studio, it was like, ah, okay, and people, people are actually enjoying what I'm doing and I'm getting paid. This is a good thing. Maybe I can keep doing this. So So take us back to 1991, that mythical land. Where Mm. were you in your career in the 90s? What was going on? What was the scene like? That 
it was an era of um, studio vocals that were either for backgrounds for artists that were signed to label deals already or um, ghost vocals, which eventually turned into something that was kind of frowned upon as technology got better and and uh, news spread about artists maybe not giving credit to the ghost vocalists, things like that. So, But I didn't mind. It was, you know, it was work and I was happy to do it. And so, uh, you know, it was all good for me. How did you get involved in the session, the Crucify session specifically? But were you already connected to David Sigerson? Uh, actually, not to David, but to Tori through Nancy Shanks, the other singer on oh. the cut. Um, Nancy and I had known each other for many, many years. We had sung with each other on various projects, on demos and session vocals. And she had been friends with Tori for a while, and I had been friends with Nancy for years before that. And she she had mentioned uh, many times uh, that she knew this very talented, charismatic singer, Tori, and uh, wanted me to meet her. And when we finally did meet, it probably wasn't uh, in the studio. I think it was more, um, I was actually, <laughs> I was cutting musicians' hair for extra cash. You know, you do whatever work comes along. Of course, you got so, the hustle, the hustle. <laughs> yeah, so Nancy had brought Tori over, and I had uh, cut Tori's hair, and so we met. And then I don't really have an exact uh timeline for this but i had sung then after that on a few uh demos with tori and nancy we got together at tori's house once and i think at a, a remote studio and a bus out in malibu and <laughs> so so we had done a few tracks and and agreed that we sang well together the three of us and so uh when it came time for tori to go in the studio and do these vocals um you know she brought nancy and me in and it was a great fit and so I hadn't really met David until that day of the session. So can you talk a little bit more about that session? What was it like? Do you have any details you remember? Oh, okay. So um, it was a day. It was daytime. I don't remember exactly what studio it was, but I'm going to say it was probably, possibly, a studio in North Hollywood called Enterprise. Um, I used to work at Enterprise and Entourage quite a bit, and both of those were in the same neighborhood. And um, I remember going in that day, I would have met David at that time, and we probably cut two or three tracks, background parts. Uh, honestly, I can't remember which other ones we cut that day, but what I remember specifically about, there were two things. One was the emotion attached to doing Crucify. You know, when you're when you're really focusing and you're in the studio and you're thinking about what words you're singing and are you singing in tune and are you emoting the the feel of the lyric, you know, those those things really stay with you. And obviously that's a very powerful word. And um, I felt honored and energized and excited to be to doing that. And the other thing that I really remember as we were leaving, the three of us women left the studio. I remember walking on the sidewalk and we all felt a sense of of power and accomplishment and like we had done something bigger than ourselves, like it was going to be a, a very powerful, uh, meaningful event. And I, I don't think it was just me that felt that way. I, I think all of us felt like that. And uh, so, and I remember it was still daylight outside, so it, it wasn't an all day into the night session. It was probably, a, you know, an efficient session that was a few hours, maybe an hour for each track or something. You know, a lot of times when you go in as a studio vocalist, you don't necessarily 
know the whole song or even hear the whole song. You you hear specific parts that you're focused on. It saves time and money for the producer. And so I'm not sure that I had even heard the entire song, probably until it was actually finished. But um, when we go in and do our parts, we're really focused on specific things in the track. And that's what I remember about that day was just, you know, really honing in, doing those parts, doing them whatever number of times we're required to get the sound and um, and then just moving on to whatever the next track was. You know, it's really satisfying to hear that even in that moment, you knew how special it was, how mm-hmm. powerful that moment was. Mm-hmm. Um, Very much so, yeah. What was it like? Can you take us to the, take us back to when you first heard the completed track? What was that like hearing? Uh, did you hear the remix version or did you hear the album version first? Because you're featured I, differently I, in both. Per- yeah, I'm pretty sure I heard the album version first, and I don't remember. Sometimes we're we're given opportunity to listen to a final mix before it's pressed, and I don't remember whether I was in on that or not, but I, I'm sure that I heard the album version first, and I remember being pretty blown away with the, the power of the, you know, recording the production, and pretty exciting to hear that I was a part of that. And, you know, Nancy and I haven't, sung together and having been friends for so many years that was one of the first times that we had been in the studio together doing a part for somebody else where it was the two of us and Nancy has a very distinct sound and my job was to blend with her blend with Tori and so when I listened back to that it was like I hear I hear all of our voices but I but I hear a, a really good good nice blend of what we were supposed to accomplish and so you know you got to hand that to the producer but also the energy that you create, you know, as friends is a, a part of it as well. And I think that was another reason why I was lucky enough to be involved. You you know, Tori and Nancy both, and hopefully I was uh, pretty tuned into a similar energy. And so hopefully that translates and comes across as something that's special in the finished product. Oh, 100%. It comes across. I think it's such a beautiful blend of voices, almost kind of like an angelic choir singing, which is uh, mm. being for crucified, being kind of apropos. Right. Well, we might have tried to feel like angels that day. Knowing knowing us, we, <laughs> we would have tried to channel something from a higher power, I'm sure. Well, mission accomplished. Um, do you have any other specific memories of that time? Anything that you want to share? Memories of Tori? Well, I'll... I'll backtrack a little bit to uh, not the day of recording Crucify, but to the day that I first heard Tori in her home sit down at the piano and sing some of the songs. In fact, it was probably the day when we were going to see how we sounded together. And so I remember her sitting at her piano in her house and being absolutely, I was absolutely taken with her power as a musician, her talent and her charisma. Um, it was rare for me to be in a, an intimate setting like that with someone who was as special as Tori. She just sat down and started playing, and I was like, wow, this is the coolest. This is so fresh and different and so powerful. And and then as a person that day, too, I found her to be very um, intuitive and intelligent. And here she was, this this kind of petite but soft-spoken young woman who had so much of a, 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 she had a very deep soul. And, you know, she'd look at your right in the eye and say, this is what I think. And this is how I feel about you and our future and your future as a, as a singer. And so 
all of that combined made a huge impression on me. And so I was, I was pretty, uh, pretty impressed and very thankful and appreciative that, that Nancy had brought me into that, that circle. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you can find Tina Gullickson online at margaritaville.com. You can also find her popping up from time to time on Jimmy Buffett's social media pages. So follow those. Thank you so much, Tina, for talking to us today. Thank you very much. And uh, maybe our paths will cross in the future. I hope so. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Of course, that was only a small part of a longer interview. If you want to hear the whole interview, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Songs of Tori Amos, where if you're a supporter, you can hear that and other exclusive content right away. And now here's an instrumental cover by Nama Ailan. I think being a mom and a wife does, it is a very different place than where I was not being a mom or married when I wrote Little Earthquakes. And so, um, and not having had success when I wrote that album, I had to make a choice about the music I wanted to compose, not knowing anyone would embrace it, but just to stay alive and wake up in the morning and respect myself. Even if I had to play piano bar for the rest of my life, the great lesson of Why Can't Tori Read was that I began to see what the music industry was made up of for the first time clearly. You only find that out once you've been kind of accepted into it and then had a bomb. You don't know what it's about unless you've had a bomb, trust me. And you begin to see who's there and who's not. And one person was there, two people maybe. That kind of gave me the, the courage to make the choice, well, would I rather have these false, I don't know, relationships in my life or have real relationships and respect what I do, even if that means I don't have success commercially, but I have success as a musician because I respect what I do. And once I made that choice, my life changed. What's that smell, David? Oh, that's the new live section smell. Oh. Buckle up, y'all, because we are giving you the full Crucify Live treatment. We are not going to do this episode and not do it right. Right? No, no song has had a longer life. So we are going to do it right. And so for the next five hours, we'll be discussing Crucify Live. Get comfortable, take a shower, towel off, but leave your heels on. So let's talk about the very first time she played it. So we've heard that already. It was the Live in Montreux on July 3rd, 1991. So that was the first time we have on record her playing it. Another time that we have on record is at the end of 1991, and this is the earliest bootleg I could find. And this is from December 12th, 1991 in Tuscus, England. And I love this bootleg because you can hear it's kind of like in a bar, no pretense, she's just kind of like entertaining the drunk people. Mm. Hi. Finger in the rear, 
pointing at me I want to spit in the faces Then I get afraid of what that could bring I got a bowling ball in my stomach I got a desert in my mouth Figures that my courage would choose to sell out now I've been That's incredible because it really sounds like she's in someone's room. Right. Like you can tell how small the venue is. And the first thing that strikes me actually is the fact that she's playing on a synthesizer of some yeah. kind or an electric piano. It's clearly not a real piano. And she was playing this along with such a sense of urgency, like the tempo was consistent. And I don't know if that's because... Uh, the songs were new and she was just out there, you know, ready to ready to unveil them. Or if maybe it was sort of dictated by the fact that she was playing such small venues to an audience that maybe wasn't necessarily there to see her. So she was just mm-hmm. trying to hold their interest and yeah. keep things moving. I don't know. But for the purposes of this podcast, everything that comes prior to 1992 is pre Little Earthquakes tour. And every 1992 show is a Little Earthquakes show. Um, and that's how we do it here. I think it's really our own fault, though, for not having the idea for this podcast back in 92. Well, <laughs> would have been a lot harder. I mean, and a lot easier in some ways. <laughs> Tonight's show, she played Crucify again. Okay, so in 1992, and it's hard to reconstruct this this tour, you know, because there's 146 shows, and I counted everywhere. I spent hours before you got here figuring this out. I counted 146 shows on the Little Earthquakes tour, which was all of the 92 shows. So 146 1992 shows. Of those 146 shows, there were 45 surviving set lists somewhere. And of those 45 surviving set lists, I counted only one time that Crucify was not played. There's only evidence that it was not played one time. Do we even know if that one set list is correct? Or we, it's not included? We have a bootleg of it. Okay. So it seems pretty correct because I listened to the first like few songs and it doesn't seem like anything was cut from it mm. unless the very first song was cut, but God knows. And that was February 21st in Sheffield, forever known as the show where she did crucify herself. <laughs> so she performed it, I would say, at 99% of the shows yeah, on that tour. Yeah, has to be. Yes. What I found really interesting is that on that tour, she performed it 76% of the times that she performed it, it was performed as the second song. 14% of the times that she performed it, it was performed as the third song. And 10% of the times that she performed it, it was performed as the first song. She never performed it any other slot. Isn't that crazy? It was either always one, two, or three. Mm-hmm. You want to hear some more? Yeah, lay it on me. This we don't count in the official show count, but this is her first appearance at Two Meter Sessies on March 14th, 1992. We tried to get video footage. They never wrote me back. Been looking for a savior in these dirty streets. Looking for a savior beneath these dirty sheets. I've been raising up my ass, drop another nail in. Just what God needs One more victim Why do we Crucify ourselves Every day Crucify myself David, I listen to Every 92 Crucify And you know that's true I'd gone crazy Girl, you know it's true Ooh, ooh, ooh We love crew We love crew You're right, of course We couldn't do this episode, David, without discussing the time that she did it in the Minneapolis airport at the Northwest Airlines Lounge. Talk about first class. August 2nd, 1992. 
Looking for a savior in these dirty streets. Looking for a savior beneath these dirty sheets. I've been raising up my hands, driving another nail in. Away those angels, when you need them, wind away. I crucify yourself forever eating and I crucify my death. And nothing I do is good enough for you. I crucify my death forever eating. I crucify my death. And my heart sick of being. You want a little bit of info on that show? Oh my gosh, yes. Well, let's start with this little clip. It's like pop-up video. Okay, hi everybody, MTV. I'm here at Northwest Airlines Cafeteria, and um, we just did a little concert here. So we're on the road to, we're going to Grand Rapids, right? Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids. and we did uh, First Avenue in Minneapolis night before. So um, if you need a meal, you should have been here. <laughs> Thanks, bye. So this is from Billboard magazine, August 15th, 1992. Do you want to read this? The headline, Atlantic hopes to get Tori Amos on air by grounding promo in personal stints. Bottom line, 1992, it's tougher than ever to get records on the radio, says Danny Buch, Atlantic Records VP of Promotion. That's why you have to go to stations with intelligent promotional packages in order to get them interested. Buch and Atlantic have begun offering just such a package to radio stations in the form of Tori Amos as she tours the country through September. Rather than shuttle Amos off to station studios for interviews, however, the label is offering to set up in-home and in-office performances for contest winners. In Minneapolis, where KDWBPD Mark Bulk is going after in-office listening, Amos agreed to play the workplace of the station's contest winner, the Northwest Airlines Cafeteria. In Indianapolis, where WZPL has not yet added Amos's Crucify single, the station is sponsoring an outdoor lunchtime show downtown at City Market. Boog hopes to set up other radio shows in Philadelphia, Atlantic, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, among other markets as the tour progresses. John Dimmick, PD at KISN, Kissin, Salt Lake City, is mulling over an Amos promotion when she comes to town in late August. The go-ahead will depend on how well the single performs. I think it performed pretty well. All because of these promotions? Yeah. Because Tori performed at your house in 1992. Bring your friends. <laughs> she captured an international audience at the airport. Oh my goodness. I know we already did the promo section, but here is the first Jay Leno appearance on January 12, 1993. Here it is.
Oh, you know what that sound means, David? We've never heard it before. We've shoomed to 1994? Yeah, it's crazy to be in an era where we have to shoom to 1994. <laughs> what you want to do, I want to shoom. It's 1994 now, and in 1994, Tori Amos performed, at my best count, 179 shows. Of those 179 shows... There are 131 surviving set lists, not counting radio shows, so about 48 missing set lists. But of those 131 set lists, Crucify was on 84 of those set lists. Assuming that that's kind of an accurate representation of the tour, of how the tour was, we can assume she performed Crucify about 64% of the shows. Crazy, right? Yeah, I certainly would have guessed closer to 75 or even higher, maybe. Right. She was doing a lot of double headers, though. She was. Sometimes it would appear on one show and not the other, so. There's no way of knowing, short of Tori pulling out her box of set lists from under her bed and mailing them to us. So please do that if you're listening. We'll pay for the shipping. Yeah. (laughs) The tour debut of this song was on February 24th, 1994 in Newcastle, which was opening night of the tour. And this will prove to be a theme throughout her entire career is that this song, and you'll see as we go along, this song appears at almost every opening night of a Tori Amos tour. What do you make of that, that it shows up at pretty much every first show of a tour or even leg of a tour? Um, I'm not sure I'd observed that before. Like we had talked about with Heather, maybe she reminds herself to not crucify herself or not be a victim. It's got a lot to do with that. Also, it was a single. Maybe that has something. Maybe it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah, interesting. I think it's a comfortable song for her to play. Not in the sense that it's easy, but comforting. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's her comfort animal when she's on tour. Definitely a signature song. And I think I agree with what you were saying about um, reminding herself. And maybe she's even reminding herself as she embarks on a tour like this that you know what no matter what you do you're never gonna please everybody and that's okay kind of like at the start of her career at the start of the tour you know blessing the journey Mm. you know when tori has talked about marianne she says that was one of the songs that gave her strength when she was sort of putting the album together and battling for it it's she faced you know similar battles when she was fighting for little earthquakes and it was rejected so i wouldn't be surprised if this song sort of galvanized her And it was one of the songs where she knew she nailed it and almost written an anthem Mm -hmm. that symbolized this period. So maybe that's why she always goes back to it. I definitely can get behind that. This is March 4th in Cambridge. There's a cute little ditty that she does at the top. Diddy to some, him to others, I guess. Um, we also mentioned that on the This Old Man episode when we were talking to my dad about Oh Four Thousand Tongues to Sing being part of Icicle. That's that same passage from the hymn. It shows up here. She's obsessed with she it. She is. Can't get enough. That's a big Methodist standard, so hmm. that makes sense. So basically in 94, the song really didn't evolve much. It was a little bit more relaxed. Here's one just to kind of prove my point. Looking for a sea of the 
That was Raleigh, North Carolina, July 29th, 1994. See you, David. A little more spacious. Crucify's stretching its arms. She's got a bigger spreading apartment. Spreading its wings yeah. second time around. Like 92, she was in a studio. Here she's in a one-bedroom. <laughs> you know where we are. 1996. The best. In 1996, Tori Amos performed 187 shows. I never I, forget that number because it's the code for homicide, right? Is it 187. Really? <laughs> <laughs> she killed it that tour. She did. She totally killed it. <laughs> of the 187 shows that she performed, 185 set lists still survive, not counting the radio shows, etc. And of those 185 set lists, she performed Crucify on 51 of those set lists. Hmm. So let's do the math. Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, beep, boop. It's a good thing Oliver went to college. She performed Crucify at 28% of the shows. Good math, Ollie. The tour debut of this song was February 23rd, 1996 in Ipswich. Of course, we don't have a recording for that, but it was the opening night of that tour. Yep, so, there you go. And it was pretty consistent at the top of the set list. You know, first song, second song, third song, still in that, I mean, not after beauty queen beauty queen horses is always the first song but it would often show up like right after or two songs later until about july or august when it dropped to the lower half of the set list inexplicably isn't that crazy interesting i do think there was a shift for sure after she'd kind of completed the first leg of the u.s tour and she started mixing things up a little bit and playing with the format of the show so and then she had a, a larger body of work so there was a lot more yeah. aggressive songs to come in with if she wanted to be aggressive here's april 9th at the opening night of the again an opening night the opening night of the u.s leg in tampa florida and it's interrupted uh, by some screaming crazy fans i remember this here we go Let me take you. Let me sing for you. Mm. May, May in the corner. <laughs> um, okay, she did it again in July, on July 12th in Oakland at the Late Show. And here's this little interesting moment at the bridge. And I want to play this because you know my favorite moments in Tori songs. You know how they evolve over time. But my favorite mo moments aren't the full, complete evolution, but it's the working it out on her way to, like, you're just a pussy and sugar. So, you know, just the different versions and what when she actually finally gets there. So here's the first moment that it feels like 
crucify wants to, you know, wants to stretch its legs. This is the first moment that I've identified and I've listened to almost all of the crucifies that survive and that's a feat. Thank you. No applause necessary, please. I was happy to do it. Here is July 12th in Oakland, The Late Show. what I mean, David? You can say? It's the first time the bridge is like, there's ever been really anything added to it. Mm. You know, so it's really interesting because we're going to get to a place. Here's July 21st in Portland, Oregon. And again, the bridge is kind of morphing into something. And we're going to get somewhere with this. So th- listen to this one. Portland, Oregon, July 21st. So after that performance, Portland, Oregon, there are four, count them, four missing shows. Okay. And then it could be the first time. It could not be the first time because there's those four missing shows. But this is the first time Crucify really steps out that we have on tape. This is August 21st in Charlotte, North Carolina.
awesome. Oh my God, I love this era so much. You had this big smile on your face as you were listening that's, to that. That just takes me back, and that's what I will always think of when I think of Tori. Like that's who she. <laughs> that's who she is to me. It's so great. It was great, cool. right? Mm. It, that was happening with a couple songs on this tour as they evolved. I, you mean? Yeah, yeah. and. You know, one could speculate that maybe she was getting a little tired of the same arrangements and playing the same songs night, long night after night after night. So she was kind of mixing it up for herself. And I think there's part of that. But it was almost like even as the tour went on, she was getting more and more open mm-hmm. and just letting herself wander and letting like almost whatever wanted to come through, come through. And that was reminding me of some of the later performances of Horses, mm-hmm. where she would kind of draw her head back from the mic and be playing and mouthing or singing, but you couldn't always hear what she was saying. And she started doing that a lot with Yes Anastasia too. So interesting, but. Love this era as well. And love that stuff like when you can't when she's not singing necessarily directly into the mic and you can just kind of hear the room noise and hear her as a human being in the space. Mm-hmm. I love that. And then, you know, the second she gives the room some space, someone's got to whistle or right. do something <laughs> ridiculous to ruin it. So here are a few more bridges from that time. October 13th in Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> Here's November 2nd in Tulsa. performance is from boulder on november 10th end of the tour second to last show of the tour but i remember it well too much for me to listen to but this era the power she was singing with straight from the chest and she never sang like that before and has not sung like that since you're right i mean it it was a crazy time it did feel like she was exercising some demons as you had said before but i think a lot of it also has to do with like the environment that she was creating on that tour i mean she was doing some crazy shit and we were responding to it which allowed her to feel i think maybe safe to do more crazy shit Mm -hmm. you know like there was Everything was going to be okay. Like here she's going wild and, and we go wild for it. So I think there was a give and a take. Intake, outtake. Intake, outtake. <laughs> ow, 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 stop it. You can't tell me it still hurts. <laughs> it might hurt a little bit. We're in 1998 and we're plugged in. 
1998, she performed 123 shows. And of those 123 shows... Sorry. (laughs) Of those 123 shows, there are 123 surviving set lists. I should hope so. Thank God we finally got our shit together. Thank God we invented the internet. On those 123 set lists, Crucify appears 44 times. So she did it at 44 shows, which is 36% of the plugged shows. This is one of the rare tours that Crucify did not come out on opening night. In fact, it took a couple of months and it came out on June 10th, 1998 in Den Haag, Holland. Why do you suppose that is, David? You know, this was a different a different approach to touring. She had the band and they actually had to learn songs and figure out the arrangements. So I think she had a handful that she hit the road with and the rest they were working out in soundcheck and, you know. Adding to the repertoire as the tour went on, for sure. Here is the debut performance from that tour, June 10th in Holland. This is June 23rd in Frankfurt. David, Frankfurt gets everything. Why is that? Frankfurt has all the best shows. <laughs> I'm going to play two bits from this performance. Here's this quick little bit. Got a bowling ball in my stomach. She's got a bowling ball in her stomach. A stomach. I love that. I don't know why. Cheesy. It's the little things. But here's the end of that performance, which I really like. Here we go. that performance that performance of crucify was on my first plugged bootleg called torah torah tori the names i miss the names of the bootlegs oh, i know we should package the box that we got from paul roy and come up with our names our own names for all of them bowling ball that. girl yeah that's, that's you know about the quality of the 90s bootlegs <laughs> <laughs> for sure bowling ball girl <laughs> easter cage they always easter like cage vaguely girl. reference the songs yeah. but you oftentimes got it wrong or just didn't make any sense. Swapping Tongues. What the, was that from? Oh, there was one called Swapping Tongues. Yeah, I remember. But Disgusting. What was, what was that name come from? I don't know. I never liked that name. My first two were Rhapsody in Pink mm. and Tori and Her Mask. Mm, I remember Tori and Her <laughs> Mask. <laughs> um, but my first plugged one was Tora Tora Tori. And that was a performance that was on there. Here's a great one. This is from Knoxville, Tennessee on the 15th of August. Are you ready, David? Hit it. 
This one is a little closer to the end of the tour. This is the 29th of November, 1998 in Columbus, Ohio. And listen to this improv at the end, David. Can you handle it? I can't. I heard ratatouille in there. A ratatatatouille away. <laughs> <laughs> Look around you, David. It's 1999. It looks a lot like 1998, but we have crimped hair. I hate this place. <laughs> <laughs> Why? My seats are terrible. So in 1999, Tori performed a total of 45 shows. Of those 45 shows, we have all 45 set lists, and Crucify was on 19 of those set lists. She played it 19 times for a total of 42% of the shows. That's almost half. Mm. It's back. I loved the 99 Crucify. Like it got I've, that little electronica yes. bump. I, but it didn't stray too far off the beaten path. I loved it for what it represented. The old kind of becoming robotic. The tour debut was on the first night of the tour, August 18th, 1999 in Fort Lauderdale. I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> August 31st in Mansfield, Massachusetts. Okay, now in the journey of Crucify, I've got to say, I've been going crazy for this song for a very long time. We've known we were recording these episodes. So I've been really diving into the life history. So um, the first major change to what Crucify becomes today, the first edition is On My Knees that day. That's the first addition to the, you know, facelifted Crucify. And this is the year that it happens, 1999. She gets to her knees and we're going to track it. Are you ready, David? I'm ready. She's work. You know, I love those parts when she's working it out, right? So this is August 31st in Mansfield, Massachusetts, and she's working out the end. Here we go. Okay. The 
This next performance, September 1st, 1999, in Wonta, New York, is the first time she gets on her knees that day. Breaking news, Tori falls to her knees in Wanta, New York. Jumps off, dusts herself off, proclaims, I'm okay. I want to take you to the end of that month and the end of the tour, the last time she played it, September 30th in Houston, and just listen to the difference. She's still on her knees, but longer and better. serious oh i know i mean the first time she obviously tried it without knee pads or without stretching so this time she was like all right i got it i can stay down here longer i can say some f words <laughs> i'd love to dallas them back cussing all around you want me to show you my tits oh my god Move. whoever These... gave me the backstage passes i don't give a fuck <laughs> 99 was the year of cursing we were all doing it we were all afraid of the millennium yeah we didn't know we could say whatever <laughs> we wanted life was short this arrangement on this tour, it definitely seems slower to me than the plugged performances, too. Yeah, she's like feeling a little because it yeah. starts that little electronic, like, right. She's booting up. Oh, that's a good way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Ooh, whenever yeah, I she's hear... like putting on her lip gloss. Yeah. Mm. She's like, Tori Bot, activate crucify mode, lip gloss boost. Let's head to 2001, David. All right. Strange. Strange. In 2001, Tori performed 54 shows, one being a pre-tour show in London and the rest being Strange Little Tour. And of those 54 shows in 2001, Crucify appeared at 21 of those shows. Dang. Um, Yeah. 39%. However you slice it. If you think that August 30th in London, that one-off show, if that was opening night to you, she performed it there. If you think that West Palm Beach, September 28, 2001 was opening night, if that's opening night to you, she performed it there as well. Take your pick. It don't matter, Crucify, you right. Crucify you there. Here is August 30th in London, and she plays it on the Whirly. And it's cute because no matter how many times she's played it over the last 10 years, she still messes up the words. It's cute. I have myself
October 15th in Boston, where she performs a little lullaby improv at the top. Clumping along. In 2002 and 2003, Tori performed 126 shows. Of those 126 shows, she performed Crucify 64 times. So that means 51% of the shows had Crucify. And this is my favorite Crucify era. Get ready. The very first time she performed Crucify was on opening night in Tampa on 7th of November 2002. And Mm -hmm. I was there. Now, this is my favorite era, and I've done a lot of tracking. Are you ready for this, David? Mm. So we've got her on her knees, right? She got on her knees back in 99, but there's still a long way to go. I've located the first time she crawled her way back, David. Oh, man, it was hard-earned. It was a hard-earned crawl, and this was the 15th of November in Camden. Are you ready, David? Here's 26th of November in Cleveland, where she has a little gasp after she crawls, and she's like, oh, I forgot I was crawling for a minute. I startled myself. Yes. She's on her knees and she's crawling now. All we need is for her to crucify her land. Oh. So in my search, my never-ending search for the first time she crucified her land, it was not in Milan or Milan. It was on February 5th in Frankfurt. They get everything. 
and we get everything because of the fruits of your labor. <laughs> your job <laughs> is lucky to have you. Uh, Spend countless hours looking for the first time Tori crucified her land. <laughs> I should ask the Sideways Society for a promotion. That's very exciting to me because it's the trifecta is there and it's all it's all bubbling under, getting ready for the moment. Our scarlet stew is almost done. It's almost yes. It's a I, long process. Got a simmer. Here's September 4th in West Palm Beach, or as we know it, welcome to sunny Florida. What I didn't mention on this tour, not only did she do it on opening night of the tour, she did it on opening night of the European leg and on opening night of the second U.S. leg. Hmm. And on opening night of the Lotta Pianos leg. Isn't that crazy? She's consistent. See, that song needs to be there on opening night. It sets everyone in the right frame of mind. What if she's superstitious? What if she is? It it very well could be. Mm -hmm. Well, 2005, Original Sensuality, she did not start the tour with Crucify. (laughs) She was tempting fate. In 2005, she did a total of 82 shows. Crucify, she played it 18 times, so 22% of the shows. In 2007, Tori performed 93 shows, and she did Crucify at 29 of them for a total of 31%. True to form, she performed at the very first show on that tour on May 28th in Rome, Italy. You ready for this? This is a band tour. Love mm. the band. Team band. She performed it 29 times on the American Doll Posse Tour. Isn't that insane? Always is Tori, right? Always is Tori. What doll would take it? Clyde. Isabel. No. You're wrong. <sighs> Isabel is the one who's concerned about crucifying the land. Oh, well, that's true. Thank you. Okay, so Tori released this song on eight different legs and boots. And they're all really good. They're all pretty much the same. But I do want to play one for you. This is October 15th, 2007 in Philadelphia. My favorite. 
One show she did in 2008. Oh, yes. She did it there, too. Mm. This is August 1st in Dranouder, Belgium. I've been looking for a CD in these dirty streets. Looking for a CD beneath these dirty sheets. I've been raising up my hands down another name. Just what got me. It's the Sinful Attraction Tour. It's sinful and it's attractive. Mm, Just like me. She performed it seven times on this tour, starting with your birthday on March 19th in Austin, which was also the first show of the tour. Mm. See, there's a theme. I'm telling you, when I noticed this, I I got a chill. was from Tori's South by Southwest performance. Um, Tori performed a total of 66 shows in 2009, and she performed Crucify at nine shows. This brings Crucify to a total of 14% for that year. Now let's move on to 2010. In 2010, Tori did 12 festival shows throughout the summer, and she performed Crucify at five of them for a total of 42%. She did not perform it at the very first festival show, in Bonnaroo, but she did perform it at the start of the Summer Festival Tour, July 9th in Montreux. But the one I want to play for you today is my favorite of that summer, which is from Pori, Finland, uh, on July 23rd, 2010, from the Pori Jazz Festival.
2011, the Night of Hunters tour, your favorite tour, right? Mm, one of them. I mean, yeah, after them. 96, probably. Yeah, probably. 2011 was amazing. This is her performing it for the first time on that tour in Paris, France on October 5th. <laughs> performed it five times on the Night of Hunters tour. Only 11%. And she waited until the fifth show to debut it. She's getting wild. She's tempting fate a lot. No kidding. 2012, the Goldust Orchestral Tour. Guess how many times she performed it, David? M-I-A. You're right. None. Oh, okay. But she brought it back on the opening night of the 2014 Unrepentant Geraldine's Tour. Opening night. She performed it 22 times on this tour. The first being in Cork, Ireland on May 25th. Here we go. Summer 2015, this is the first time she did it on that tour. May 30th, Barcelona. Guess what show it was the first. Uh, I'm on to something. Back to world tricks. I'm on to something. You know, it's really satisfying when you are a student and you really start to put the pieces together and you realize like you have all the papers and you have all the websites open. And you're like, wait, did she do it at, on the first show of every tour? And you're like pull, scrolling and you're clicking and things are flying and the pens are scribbling. You feel like yeah. it's a beautiful mind. I was just going to say that mm-hmm. there's like... Before he went crazy. <laughs> yeah. In the montage, there's like equations superimposed over Eve as you're scribbling on the mm-hmm. wall. And mm-hmm. that meme where that woman's in quadrants and she's like looking like... Hmm? Oh yeah, of course. That's <laughs> With Crucified... Looking for a savior? I think I invented time travel, but I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun, though. I I knew that when we did Crucify, I was going to have to get, like really get into it to this level. And I'm better for it. You've majored in Tori with a minor in Crucify. I have, basically. Yeah. Has anyone ever identified when she first crawled her way back, when she first crucified her land, and when she first fell on her knees that day? It's no. a small step for Tori. She, I mean, she basically fell over, <laughs> fell to her knees. But, but a, a huge a, step for the community. For the Tori fan community. Yep. Thanks, Eve. Plant your flag. I did a gesture. It was really effective. I was moved. (laughs) I forgot this was an audio show. 2017, the Native Invader Tour, she performed it 10 times. The first time was on opening night in Dublin. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. I think so. I would like to end this show with her performance of Crucify on October 24th in St. Paul. I was also there. It was opening night of the U.S. tour. And here it was just in my, for my money since '96, it's never been this good for my money. And I'm I'm not sure if it translates necessarily on the bootleg, but being there, 
being so excited about the Navy Invader tour, doing the podcast, getting just having that excitement that I knew that I knew I was going to do the whole tour. This was really a special moment. And this is Crucify from October 24th in St. Paul. that a song that has been a staple and with her in her entire career a lot of people you weren't the only one a lot of people were citing these recent performances as some of the best so she keeps it fresh she does i have to tell you being there and you can go back to listen to the tour all night from that first show the post show we talked to john Hoursler on that show i remember very specifically because he and i were both geeking out about that crucify being as outrageous as it was and as tremendous as it was and then also kind of like looking at each other like, here we are in 2017 talking about Crucify. I know that sounds lame to say, like we just heard the best Crucify of our lives, but we did. I don't think that sounds lame. I think it shows maturity and a new appreciation. It's all about, you know, those classic performances. It's not about wanting rarities. Mm-hmm. You want to hear those classic Tory tunes and she's still busting them out and doing what she does. Yeah, and it's crazy to think that you can hear something so many times and it's still fresh. And it's still like exciting. Yeah. I, I don't remember being that excited about Crucify since the West Palm Beach taping of Welcome to Sunny Florida. I was there in the second row with Nicole Horton and we crawled our way back all through that second leg and a lot of pianos. Kept going back to the bar, crawling yeah. your way back. <laughs> crawling our way back. <sighs> well, heavy sigh, awkward silence. That means we're done.
that's it for us, I guess. I'm looking around and the work is done. Yeah, there's no one here to disagree. Right. So. <laughs> Anybody else in the room want to talk? <laughs> want to watch the video again? Yeah, I guess. I guess we could wrap this up and just keep watching the commentary. Yeah. Do you feel remastered? I feel reconditioned. Oh, yeah. Reworked. Mm-hmm. I like the way the dress moves, though. Like when she's shimmying. The dress has a lot of motion in it in the video. Which dress? The second dress at the end when she's wet. Oh. Just moving around. Oh, yes. Yeah. A lot of it's in the arms for her. A lot of yeah. Tori's choreo, choreo is always very arm-centric. Yeah. A lot of formation. Mm-hmm. She's signaling something. Mm-hmm. She's always making, like, triangles, mm-hmm. framing her butt. I don't know. I love it. <laughs> well, that's it for us. If you like what we do, please follow us on all our social, at Songs of Tori Amos. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Please go to our website, songsoftoryamos.com, where we have many, many things to do. We have our newsletter you can sign up for. You can go to our store. You can hit the Remix Archive and see every remix that we've archived on our SoundCloud. Our aim is to archive every remix ever made, just to have them all. Oh, I love fan remixes. So anyway, if you have a fan remix that we don't have, you can always email us at songsoftoryamos at gmail.com for anything, conversation, if you want to become a supporter and don't know how. If you want to know how, we would say to you, go to patreon.com slash songs of and sign up today. Then you'll have complete access to our archive of tour all years and drive all night pluses and other things, exclusive interviews, raw footage, outtakes. Um, what else, David? What else do we want to say? Our first remastered Little Earthquakes episode. I'm happy. I feel I really good that we did this. Me too. You're you welcome, Crucify. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're welcome us. We really deserved it. I'm really glad we did it now because back then I, we couldn't have done it justice. I totally agree. Everything, everything in good time. Yeah. <laughs> Jumping into a big episode like this was, you know, yeah. quite an undertaking. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to listen to every single Crucify ever performed. And I pretty much did it. Exhausting. You better go through them all again just to make sure you didn't miss anything. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. I'll I mean, do it. You only found that one gasp. I'm sure there are two. Oh, I bet there's another one somewhere. I probably uh, missed it. I probably wasn't paying attention. See, this is exactly what I go through, so don't egg me on. <laughs> this will I'll be saying this to myself. As the moment I put out this episode, I'll realize something I forgot. Mm. Oh, it's haunting. Anyway, thank you guys for listening, if you are still listening. We really appreciate it. We'll be doing all of the earthquakes this year, one song per month on our Patreon page. This one is going out to the public right away. And all of the other ones are going to be on for our Patreon Drive All Night Plus subscribers throughout the year 2019. That's the way it is. Anyway, please feel free to leave us a message at any time about anything Tory related on our hotline, 323-296-9955. And we'll play it on the show if it's Tory related and if it makes us laugh or cry. I'm excited for Girl. You're feeling ready to move on? I don't know. Well, if you thought tracking down the first instance of crucifying her land was fun, wait until we track her journey from girl to woman. <laughs> anyway, this has been fun, but exhausting, but also fun. Well, it's time to go. I'm going to go crawl my way back, David. What about crawl. you? <laughs> Never going back. I guess I'll limp back home, too. Bye. Bye. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamus.com.